Okay, before we get started with the learning, we want to mention that this is the 20th annual women's summer learning event at Evergreen Estates. And this was started as a personal initiative by Mrs. Tamar Pevsner. And happy birthday. <laughs> yeah. This is actually a birthday party. You didn't realize that. But uh, this was started because Mrs. Pevsner's birthday is Zion of, the day after tomorrow. And she shares that birthday with her father, Oliva Sholem, whose birthday is also Zion of. We want to mention her father, Reb Yankiv Ben Shabsi. Oliva Sholem, his neshama should have an aliyah. And also, Mrs. Pavsner's mother, Bracha Esther Elberg, whose birthday was yesterday, Dalid Menachem of. Yeah. Mazel tov. And the women's learning event started as a novel way of having a birthday party during the nine days. You can't exactly do all the modes of celebration because it's a time of mourning, but you can always study Torah, and that's how it started. So we're, we're, we're learning Torah, and today's topic, or this year's topic, is Bitochen. But the way that this started was learning concepts of Mashiach and Geula, so I'm going to try to include that as well. In addition, I just want to tell you that today, Hey Menachem Av, is the yard site of the Arizal. In fact, it is the 450th yard site of the Holy Ari, which is certainly auspicious. Also, tomorrow, tonight and tomorrow, Vav Menachem Av is the first yard site of Horav Hagon Rabbi Yoel ben Rafael Nachman HaKoin Khan, Rabbi Yoel, the, the Rabbi's Chaiser. It's his first yard site tomorrow. So I wanted to try to touch upon all of those things. Uh, Mashiach, the Arizal, Rabbi Yoel, and of course our advertised topic of Bitochen. So, uh, hopefully those will all come together. There's a, a rabbi who every week he would get up and give a sermon. And there was a particular congregant who would always, by the end of the sermon, be asleep. The rabbi's sermon would always put this uh, congregant fast asleep. So one Shabbos, the rabbi gets up to the pulpit. He is about to start his sermon. And he looks out in the crowd. And he sees that this particular fellow is already asleep. So he says to him, uh, Chaim. <laughs> 
You didn't even give me a chance. I understand you normally fall asleep at some point in my sermon. But I, I didn't even start yet. You're already fast asleep. And Chaim says, Rabbi, I trust you. <laughs> so if you want to know what betochen is, how do you translate betochen in one word? Trust, yeah. I trust you. So this fellow, he doesn't have to wait until the rabbi's sermon bores him to sleep. He knows the rabbi's sermon is going to bore him to sleep, so he's, he's asleep already. And if you want the 30-second version of today's learning, I know we're going to be learning for several hours, a real marathon, but if you can't say it in 30 seconds, then you can't make it clear in three hours either. So here's the 30-second version. Betochen is trust, and trust means, in the simplest, most down-to-earth, most relatable, practic practical, actionable terms, trust means a state of mind and heart where your behaviors are aligned with a situation which has not yet become revealed. Just like Chaim knows to fall asleep before the rabbi even starts the sermon, because he knows what's in store. Betochen means we know what's in store, and even if we're not seeing it yet, not only we expect that we're going to see it, but we're ready to start now living as if. Because we know it's a certainty. That's the 30-second version of today. Everyone got that, right? Yeah, the 30-second version, everyone got that? Okay. So if you got that, then at any point, if I say anything that sounds too lofty or esoteric or you feel that I lost you, just know that whatever I said was just another way of saying that same point over and over again. If you got that point, you're never truly lost. Betochen means that we're ready to start now living as if we see what we don't yet see. Because we know that what we don't yet see is real. In fact, I'm going to add a little twist, but it's not a departure from the main topic. I'm only going to repeat the same point over and over again. Even though we don't see it yet, not only we know that it's real, but in some ways it may be realer than what we see. So I'll start with a, a story of Rabbi Yoel. Story that Rabbi Yoel, Rabbi Yoel told many, many stories. And some stories were stories that happened to him. So this is a story Rabbi Yoel would tell, but also it's a story about him. He said that he was once waiting for a bus I believe in Williamsburg. He was 
getting a bus from Williamsburg to Crown Heights. And uh, he was kind of uh, pacing around, I guess, at the bus stop. It wasn't a bus that he normally took, so he wasn't really sure if he's standing in the right spot or if this is the right time for the bus. So another chassid saw him and came over and said, uh, you know, uh, can I help you? Are you, uh, you looking for something? Are you, are you waiting for the bus? He said, yeah, I, I am, and I'm just really not sure. Is, is, is the bus coming? So this, this other chassid says to him, is the bus coming? Is the bus coming? Halavai, if only Mashiach would come like that bus is coming. So Rabiel said, I don't understand what you're saying. Mashiach of Zichr, 100% guaranteed is coming because that's something that it says in Torah. The bus coming? Who says the bus is coming at all? What, just because it came yesterday and the day before and the day before? There's nothing written into the code of the universe that says the bus is coming. But Mashiach's coming. This is something that we know is 100% certainty. So the guy says to him, you must be a Chabadnik. <laughs> he says, yeah, yeah. He says, yeah, I knew it. I could tell from what you just said. So later on, when the, that, that was the interaction. So later on, Rabbi Yael was fabrenging and he was telling that story. And he said, why did the guy call me a Chabadnik because of that statement? Is it because I was speaking about Mashiach? No. He was the one who brought up Mashiach. <laughs> he said it first. It must have been how I was speaking about Mashiach. And then he started to explain that Chassidus, and particularly Chassidus Chabad, is a worldview, and it changes the way that you understand reality. So that an idea like Mashiach, it's not just that we have a world, we have a reality, we have a life, but we know at some point into that life, into that reality, into that world, we'll enter this concept called Mashiach. No, that's not it. When you learn Chassidus, what you realize is that the entire reality that exists even now before the Geula was only created for the sake of Geula and redemption and Mashiach. And that it's not that Mashiach is something that comes as an addition to everything else, but that every moment of reality since the creation of the world has been part of a process that culminates in redemption. So that the entire concept of Mashiach is not an additional concept, but it's literally the fabric of reality. It is the essence of every moment is the possibility of redemption. And that that possibility of redemption in every moment is actually more real and more dependable than things like expecting buses to arrive just because they've arrived every day 
for as long as you can remember. In other words, we are souls and bodies. And so we experience reality for now during this embodiment phase that we're all going through right now. Right? We're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. So right now we're having a human embodiment experience. Our souls are eternal. They always existed, but now we're having the embodiment experience. And in the embodiment experience, we gather information through our senses, our five senses, what we see and hear and smell and taste and touch. And then we decode that information and we start to figure out reality around us. We start that from the time we're babies, right? And we start to try to make sense of what reality is, what's real. And we become very enamored with what we feel is the tangibility of reality. We call that, by the way, materialism. Materialism is not, contrary to popular misconception, materialism is not conspicuous consumption. That is one of the outgrowths of materialism. You know, needing to have nice, new, fancy stuff all the time. That's conspicuous con consumption. But materialism is a lot more basic than that. Materialism is simply a worldview that says that all reality, all things real, can be reduced to physicality. And if it's not physical, it's not real. A guy once came to me after a speech and he said, Rabbi, very inspiring. I'm also a speaker, but I speak about business. I'm a business speaker. So you speak about spirituality. I speak about reality. <laughs> the guy was a religious Jew. And I said to him, you know, you're a religious Jew. I just want to protest. You should, it's okay if you want to say I speak about spirituality. I, I, I hope I do. But don't say that that's distinct from reality. And don't say because you speak about business that you're the one speaking about reality. I would like to think we both speak about reality just from two different angles. There's the spiritual aspect of reality. There's the material aspect of reality. I would also hope that you as a religious Jew believe that the determining reality or the determining aspect of reality is the spiritual one. And then the material is a manifestation and an outgrowth of the spiritual. So... We start collecting data with our five senses and trying to make sense of the world around us. And we come to a, a worldview that is materialistic. If, if I can't see it, hear it, touch it, taste it, smell it, it's not real. And that's why we can become very uh, enamored with the scientific method and empiricism. Because the scientific method does a very good job of learning about things that we can see and hear and touch and taste and smell. It is very good for that. Um, <clears throat> it's not good for figuring out what's true 
or what's right or what's wrong or what's moral. It has its limitations, but it's a, it's a useful tool. The problem is if you're a materialist, so then all reality is only the physical reality, and then the scientific method becomes the end-all and be-all. I remember I was speaking on a campus, and a, a young lady challenged me, and she said, is what you're saying logical? I don't remember what I had just said, but she objected, and she said, is what you're saying logical? So I said, I think it is. I mean, I don't think I'm saying nonsense. Yeah, I think it's logical. So she said, <clears throat> is it scientific? I said to her, I could answer that question, but before I do, I just want to make sure you understand that you're, you're asking a new question. When you asked me, is it logical, I answered you. Now you're asking me, is it scientific? You're aware that that's a totally different question, correct? So she said, no, it's the same thing. If it's not scientific, it's not logical. So I said, okay, um, I hear you. Could I make a statement and you can tell me whether it's true or false? She said, okay. I said, all right, here's the statement. The statement is, the scientific method is the only way we have to reliably know about the world around us. She says, yes, that is a true statement. I said, do you know that that statement itself cannot be proven by science? There's no scientific experiment that you could conduct to prove that statement. You could argue it logically, And I could argue other statements logically, and we could disagree. But that statement itself is not scientific. She didn't get that. Not because she wasn't intelligent. She was intelligent. But because she'd been so thoroughly accustomed to our view of reality being reduced to only what we can process through our senses. So she wasn't even realizing that her trust in the scientific method as a way of knowing about reality was itself the process of logical reasoning that cannot be demonstrated through a physical experiment. You guys following? I know there's a lot of noise in the background. They're moving chairs, they're schlepping the mechitzas. Online, they probably don't hear all this because we have a clean audio connection here. But in the room, there's a lot of stuff going on in the background. So the question is, what's more real? <clears throat> what my five senses tell me? Or what the creator has revealed to us. Rabbi Yel's at a bus stop and a guy is telling him, Mashiach, essentially, I'm decoding, I'm unpacking the conversation here. By the way, if you don't want to be seen by thousands of people, don't walk in front of that camera. <laughs> now I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
the guy is essentially saying Mashiach is an abstraction. I mean, animamin bamunashlema, right? Principles of faith. What's faith mean? Faith means you have to have faith in it. I believe in it. I haven't seen it. I believe you. The bus, I've seen. I've seen the bus. I've seen it day after day after day after day. I've experienced it. So what's more real to me? Something that I've seen day after day after day after day? Or something that's only been described to me? I've never seen it, and I just have to imagine it. I have to believe that it's real. And from a materialist point of view, that makes a lot of sense. That argument makes a lot of sense. Of course, the Jewish perspective is that, <laughs> you know, the answer to any Jewish question when formulated as, is it this or, or is it that? What's the answer? Both. It's yes. Is it this or is it that? Yes. So what's real? The material world or the spiritual world? Yes. Oh, no, hold on. Which one is it? It's very easy to have faith if you deny the reality of the material world. It's very easy to say, this world is just a dream. It's not real. There's a, a, a world of truth. We didn't get there yet, but that's, that's the real world. That's easy. It's just as easy as the other extreme, which is, this world, the physical world, is the only reality, and anything else is a fantasy. Both positions are denying the other in order to, uh, I guess, simplify things. I, I used to study with a, uh, a Buddhist priest. Now, you want to take one guess in the world why I used to study with a Buddhist priest? He was Jewish, of course. <laughs> of course. Because <laughs> when a Jew becomes a Buddhist, God forbid, he can't just be a regular Buddhist. <laughs> He's got to be the Buddhist priest, right? Like they say, the Jews are like everybody else, only more so. <laughs> so he was, he was a brilliant guy. He was a genius. Smartest guy I ever knew, actually. And, um, yeah, it was actually heartbreaking because I, I studied Torah with him. Actually, we, we used to study Shara Yichar Ve'amona together, which is the second volume of Tanya. And he was so quick. He used to grasp concepts in Chassidus so quickly. You know what the sign of grasping concepts quickly? He would, not only he would be able to say back to me the ideas that we had studied in his own words, but he was able to make jokes about what we had just learned, and the jokes were actually funny. That's the sign of real command of the material. So he 
was a very special person, and, and I could talk to you all day about him, but I'll just mention one thing. Actually, his yard site is, is coming up. I'm going to look it up. I have to look up the date. I believe it's coming up very soon. Um, he passed away. I'll just tell you a little bit about his background because it's pertinent to the story. He had a PhD from Princeton in um, philosophy. And he was sort of like Yisro, you know, Moshe's uh, father-in-law, Yisro. He worshipped every idol worship in the world until he came to believe in the one God. So my friend, he never... <laughs> got to the second part, <laughs> he, uh, he never got to officially proclaim his belief in the one God, although every time we would study together, he would put on tefillin, and he would tell me, there's nothing in Buddhism that prevents me from putting on tefillin. I told him, I'm not worried. <laughs> he was worried I'd feel guilty. I was making him do a Buddhist uh, Avera. <laughs> I said, I'm not worried. <laughs> Anyways, um, People always ask me that question. Whenever I tell that story, they're like, oh, so he did chova and he became from, and he, uh, no, no, he didn't. But he used to study Torah with me, and uh, so like I said, he had a PhD in Princeton from, uh, uh, in, in uh, philosophy. So he had studied every philosophy in the world. And being a man of integrity, he came to a point where he said, I have to adopt one of these philosophies as my worldview, and I have to live according to it. So uh, Juda Judaism was the first ideology that he crossed off the list because he had been to uh, Hebrew school and he had a bar mitzvah. And based on that experience, he knew that Judaism had nothing to offer. Unfortunately, that's the story of so many American Jews who were given a very distilled or very ra rather diluted version of Judaism and uh, it was a turnoff for a person like him. Uh, so he explored, finally he, he found Buddhism and he committed himself wholly to that and he became a Buddhist priest. So what I'm telling you is just remember, bear in mind for the story that he was an expert in all of the world religions and philosophies and ideologies. At any rate, we were studying once. I don't remember what I said that triggered this. But I remember all of a sudden he starts screaming, that's radical. And I said, what? He said, that, what you just said, that's radical. I said, what did I say? He couldn't calm down. He just kept saying, that's radical. That's radical. I said, what's radical? And finally, after he calmed down, he explained it to me. He said, nobody says what you guys say. Nobody. And remember, when he says nobody says this, he knows what he's talking about because he had studied all the ideologies and philosophies and religions in the world. So when he said it, he meant it. He knew what he was talking about. I said, what? What does nobody say but us? He said, now listen to what he said. There are those who will argue that the phenomenological universe does not exist. The phenomenological universe means the world where stuff happens. The physical plane. 
So there are those who will tell you that that is an illusion. It doesn't really exist. There are others who will tell you that it does exist, but it only exists as a stepping stone in order to get to a more important reality. Then, of course, there are atheistic, materialistic worldviews who say that only the physical world exists and there is no other reality. But nobody says that the physical world exists, the spiritual worlds exist, and that the ultimate purpose of it all is in the physical world. He said, that is radical. That was a huge eye-opener for me because it never occurred to me that that was a unique concept. After he said it, a lot of things clicked for me, like why at the end of all of this, when history finally culminates in a perfected world, why will all those souls in paradise who've been ascending year after year on their anniversary of passing on the yard site, they go to one level higher in Gan Eden in paradise. And think about the soul of Meshe Rabbeinu. Moses is 3,300 whatever, how many years since he ascended on high. He's that many levels up there in paradise. And at some point, redemption will come to this physical plane. The world will be perfected. And Meshe Rabbeinu, along with all the other souls in paradise, are going to make a U-turn. And they're going to come back down into physical bodies. Why? Because at that point, the physical world will be so refined that it will be holier than heaven. And the only way that a soul will be able to have an ascent is by descending. Because the physical plane will be the ultimate place of godly revelation. Like the prophet says, That all flesh will see. Kipi. Hashem Diber, that Hashem has spoken, that Hashem speaks the world into being, that the existence of reality is divine speech, and that we'll perceive that with our fleshly eyes, not as an article of faith, as an abstract notion that we believe in, but as something we observe empirically. So my friend helped me to realize that that was a uniquely Jewish concept. The material world is real. In fact, the ultimate point of it all takes place down here. But the material world is not, certainly not, the only reality. And what we see and hear and smell and touch and taste is not the final arbiter of what is real or not real. So what do you trust more? That the bus is coming because you've been on that bus and you've seen that bus and it came yesterday and the day before and the day before that? Or that Mashiach is coming because the entire world was only created for that purpose 
and that every moment that Mashiach is not yet here is still a moment full of Mashiach potential. Which is more certain? Which is more reliable? Which is more real? So what I want to explain to you is this. Bitochen is not a tool that will enhance your life or even enhance your Judaism. Bitochen, real Bitochen, will radically change your life and your Judaism. If you want to simply take this thing called Bitochen and import it into a pre-existing worldview, That's not what Bitochen is. Real Bitochen is a new way of thinking about everything. You understand? It's the difference between there's a world that I live in, and that's real to me. But at the end of that all, there's this thing called redemption. There's this thing called Mashiach. That's one worldview. And the other worldview is every moment of reality only exists as part of a process of revealing oneness in the world. Every moment Mashiach is not yet here is actually a moment of Mashiach potential. Like the Yalkut Shmaini tells us, when the Churban occurred, when the when the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. At that very moment, Mashiach was born. That even the destructive parts of the process are part of the process. So Mashiach isn't something that happens at the end of the process. Mashiach is something that's been happening all along, even in the horrifying moments of our collective history, and of our personal lives. About Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues who uh, went to the Temple Mount. And uh, they saw the Beis Hamikdash in ruins. They saw the, the site where the Holy Temple had stood on the Temple Mount. They saw that it was in ruins. They saw foxes running around. For us, foxes might, might sound like kind of exotic. So you, I don't think it triggers the right reaction in, uh, in this crowd. But, you know, think about like raccoons or something. Some type of varmint, some type of pest that goes through your garbage. And you see... You know, it's annoying enough when raccoons get into your bins on the side of your house. Imagine in raccoons are running around in the holiest place, a place where only the Kain Gadol could go once a year on the holiest day on Yim Kippur. And now these varmints are running around. It's a, it's a horrific sight. And uh, Rabbi Akiva laughed. And the other 
sages asked him, why are you laughing? He said, why are you crying? And he proceeded to explain that there's a prophecy in Micha, the prophet Micha, Tzion Soda Techoresh. Tzion, Tzion means Zion, it means the, the place of the holy temple, will be plowed over like a field. So this is a prophecy. And he says, just like this prophecy I see coming true, so too the good prophecies about the redemption will come true. And that's why I'm laughing. And after he told them that, so they told him, Akiva Nechamtonu, Akiva Nechamtonu, Akiva, you have comforted us. Akiva, you have comforted us. There's a sikha from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He asks a dozen questions about this story, which I won't get into. But just a quick question. I understand that uh, Rabbi Akiva was consoled by the knowledge that just like the negative prophecies came true, the positive prophecies would one day come true as well. But laugh. Okay, I'll ask another question too. Presumably Rabbi Akiva believed that Mashiach was coming not because he saw foxes, but because it's a basic article of our Jewish belief. He needed to see foxes in order to know that Mashiach is going to come eventually. That's another question. All right, I'll ask you a third question. Why did they say it twice? Akiva, you have comforted us. Akiva, you have comforted us. Why twice? You following? There was a Yid in Russia. He got thrown in prison. And his wife wrote him a letter. And she said that it's time to plant the potatoes and the ground is so hard, I can't break the earth. I can't plant the potatoes. I need to plow the, the potato field. And uh, I'm just, I'm not strong enough to do it. Usually, I relied on you to do that. So she wrote him this letter to him, to him in prison. And he gets the letter, and he writes her back from prison and says, don't go near the potato field, that's where I hid all of the weapons. She gets the letter. The next day, a truck full of soldiers roll up to their house, and they come out with shovels, and they start tearing apart the potato field, looking for the hidden weapons. Because, of course, all of the mail that went to and came out of the prison was all inspected. It was all read. So they knew exactly what he had written to her. So uh, she writes him back and she says, the soldiers were here and they tore apart our yard with shovels and axes. And he writes her back and he says to her, now you can plant the potatoes. 
was that act when the soldiers were tearing up the yard with shovels and axes, was that act an act of destruction or an act of growth? Depends if you're looking at a picture or you're looking at a movie. <laughs> if you're looking at a picture, you only see a snapshot. You see a slice in time. And that moment is a moment of destruction. But if you're looking at a movie, and that's just one scene in the story, you know the end of the story. The end of the story is the soldiers, whether they knew it or not, were doing this woman's work for her and plowing the field. By the way, plowing is one of the 39 prohibited forms of, of labor on Shabbos. The 39 prohibited forms of labor are, are only prohibited because they are productive. If it's prohibited on Shabbos, it's because it's an act of productivity. So tearing up the ground is not destructive, it's productive if it's for plowing. That's what Rabbi Akiva meant when he cited that particular verse in the book of Micha. He said, that Zion will be plowed like a field. That what I see in front of me is not wanton, senseless destruction. If you take a snapshot, it is. But if you know the whole story, the Beis HaMikdash wasn't destroyed. It's just going through a process that's going to help it to grow even bigger. Like when you plow, you're not destroying, you're fostering new growth. That this itself is all part of the redemptive process. So what questions did I ask about the story? Why did he laugh? Why did he react to that particular detail of the foxes running around and seeing uh, the Besamikdash plowed over? Didn't he already believe? And why did they tell him twice you have comforted us? Very simple. Of course, Rabbi Akiva believed that Mashiach would come. But you think that Mashiach coming, you think redemption means one thing. You think it means only one thing. It means a lot of things. There are a lot of different scenarios of how the redemption can look and a lot of different levels. When Mashiach comes, there's going to be a revelation of godliness in this world. How much of a revelation? Oh, that depends. The revelations that will come when Mashiach is here depend on the process that we went through while we were working through this phase called, called Golis, called exile. So it's not just that Mashiach either is or isn't. Even the idea of Mashiach has gradations. There are different levels qualitatively. In other words, it can be a big redemption or an even bigger redemption. 
So Rabbi Akiva, when he saw how thoroughly the destruction was, in other words, how much plowing there was, he said, oh, you do that much plowing? Then proportionately, commensurately, you're going to have that much more growth. So he laughed because it wasn't just he was consoled by the idea that eventually there would come a redemption after the destruction. He laughed because he saw an act which to him was part of redemption. And the reason why he was so pleased by seeing the Beis HaMikdash plowed like that, why it meant something significant to him, and not just the general belief in Mashiach coming, is precisely the same reason. Because now he's understanding that the degree of redemption will be even greater based on the degree, the thoroughness of the destruction. I knew Mashiach was coming. I always knew Mashiach was coming. But such a Mashiach? And that's why they told him twice, Akiva, you have comforted us. Akiva, you have comforted us. Because he didn't just comfort, comfort them that there will be a redemption after the destruction. He also comforted them that the destruction itself is part of the process of redemption. So that's a double comfort. That's also why the Shabbos after Tisha B'Av, Shabbos Nachamu, the prophet uses the double expression, nachmu, nachmu. Console, console my people. What's the double consolation? That not only after the period of exile there will come a redemption, but the double consolation is even the moments of exile are part of the process of redemption. So you hear what I'm saying? It's not just that Mashiach is something that comes after reality as we know it. Mashiach is actually the underlying reality of the entire process that we are experiencing, which is a redemptive process, even the moments of destruction, even the moments in your life when your personal holy place has been torn apart, it is not being destroyed, it's being plowed for the purpose of greater growth than would have been possible without the plowing. So it's not just that after we go through the pain, we're going to get the comfort. What kind of cruelty is that? A zero-sum game. Hashem is going to put us through all types of torture, and at the end, he's going to give us a hug and make it all better. God forbid. You think that's what it is? It's a whole different way of looking at reality. Even while we're going through our pain, we are already engaged in the redemptive process. Understand, I'm going to say it again. It's not just we go through reality as we know it and all the pain and all the travails and the tests and the horrors, and at the end of it all, Hashem makes nice and comforts us. God forbid. It's that the entire process all along was a redemptive process. And in fact the more harrowing it is, 
the more deeply the plowing, the greater the growth that will follow. I mentioned today is the yard site of the Arizal. A teaching from the Arizal. The Rebbe spoke on his father's yard site, Chof Av, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. Chof Shin Mem Base. And uh, shared a teaching in the name of the Arizal, the Holy Ari. Rav Yitzchak Luria. I told you, 450 years, right? It's a big deal. I don't know what it means, but it means something. You know how old the Arizal was when he passed away, by the way? 38, yeah. Somebody said that back there, 38, yeah. Remarkable. And he was only really known as a teacher for uh, less than two years. He used to walk around Sfas with Chaim Vital. He told him, you don't have time right now to write. I'm just going to dictate. And very soon there will come a time we're going to have you have plenty of time to write. And then Arizal passed away, and Chaim Vital sat down and transcribed all of the teachings of the Ari. That's why the name Kisvi Arizal is a misnomer, because the Arizal didn't write it, Chaim Vital wrote it. At any rate, a teaching from the Holy Ari. There's a posik. Bilo hamovas lo netzach, that when Mashiach comes, death will be swallowed up forever. Umocha Hashem dima mi alkol ponim, and Hashem will erase or wipe away the tear from every face. Death will be swallowed up forever, and Hashem will wipe away the tear from every face. The Ari says, Dima, the word for tear. Im hakoilel bigamatria moyed. I'll say it in English. <laughs> the word Dima, for, which means tear in that verse, death will be swallowed up forever and God will wipe away the tear from every face. The Hebrew word for tear, Dima, Dalad mem ayin hay. Imha koilel, you know what imha koilel means? When you do gematria, sometimes you add one more for the word itself. So dima is 119. Dalad mem ayin hey. Dalad is 4, mem is 40, ayin is 70, hey is 5. That's 119. You add one more for the word itself. That's 120. 120 is moyed, mem vav ayin dalad, which means a holiday or a festival. So Dima, Tir, Ima Koilel, is the same as Mayid, a party, a happy occasion. What does that mean? Tears and parties? <laughs> I guess that's the uh, source of it's my party and I'll cry if I want to. <laughs> what 
does that mean tears and parties? A tear is the opposite of a party. And what's this imakoilo business? It just seems like a cheap trick. <laughs> right? You know, like uh, they say about gematria. That you can make up a gematria for anything. Like they say, you know that kugel is big gematria Shabbos? You say, hold on a second. Shabbos is 702. Kugel is 209. Okay, have another few pieces of kugel. <laughs> right? So what is this, a joke? So dima imakoilel... Like, come on. You know, there was a guy uh, from, uh, from Eretz Yisrael who used to collect tzedakah here in America. His name was Don. What was his name? Don. Reb Don. And he collected for a koilel in Yerushalayim. So he uh, used to come to America and he would go to the office buildings in Manhattan and he would collect from uh, different businessmen. So uh, for his koilel, he had a koilel in Yerushalayim. So one time, one of these guys from Manhattan was in Eretz Yisrael, and uh, he went to the address where he'd been sending the money all these years, and he finds it's an apartment. It's just this guy, Don, just lives there with his family. There's no koilel. So he gets home, and he writes this Don a letter, and he says, now I know why Don is Bigamatria Ganev. Your name, Don, is Bigamatria Ganev. Ganev is a thief. So Don writes him back. He says, well, actually, that's not true, because Don, Dalad Nun, is 54. Ganev is 55. It's one more. Don is 54. Ganev is 55. One more. The guy writes back. Don im hakoilel. <laughs> it's begamatria, Ganev. Okay. Im What's this im business? It's not a joke. It's the deepest reality. If Hashem is only going to come at the end of all of this and take away your tear, then what purpose did it all serve? Like I said before, that's a zero-sum game. That's like investing a million dollars and only getting back a million dollars. So you didn't make a million dollars. You made back your investment. You broke even. Well, you dig a hole and you fill it up again. You didn't accomplish anything. So at the end of this all, Hashem's going to just comfort us. Oh, it's all better now. Well, better now. Better now. Thank you. But what about all the hell that I went through until now? Nobody thinks about that. You're afraid to say that. You think it's heretical. It's not heretical. It's heretical not to say it. If you're going to tell me at the end of it all, death will be swallowed up forever, great. But what about all the people who had to die until then? That's okay? Hashem will wipe away the tear from your face. No more tears, like the shampoo bottle says. Okay, great. No more tears. What about all the tears that were shed until then? 
So here's the vart. It's not destruction, it's plowing for greater growth. Every moment of loss was the preparation for greater gain. Yerida Letzerich Aliyah, descent for the sake of a greater ascent. You see a snapshot of a guy crouching low. Is he high or is he low? Well, he's low at this moment, but he's crouching low in order to leap up. And in fact, the lower he crouches, the higher he's going to leap. The more thorough the destruction, the more complete the ensuing redemptive process will be. So here's the vart, how the Rebbe explained it. Dima, on its own, is 119, and it will never amount to mayed, which is the celebration, the good times that are coming. It's Dima im hakoilel. Hakoilel here means the big picture. Hakoilel means when you take it all into account. In fact, once you see the big picture, you realize the tears on their own were actually non-existent. They weren't real. On their own, taken completely on their own. What do I mean they're not real? They serve no, they, they serve no function. They serve no eternal purpose. And what's the greatest proof? That eventually they'll be removed forever. So if it'll be removed forever, for an eternity, then all the time that it temporarily existed means it wasn't really so real. Because that's the point. Tears on their own serve no function or purpose. Tears as part of a process, im with the big picture, serve a function. And that's what I'm telling you. Bitochen isn't merely, I have my life, I have my sense of reality, I have my sense of how the world works, but now I have this new thing, which is I can look forward to, at some point, things are going to be good. That's not Bitochen. Bitochen is a completely new worldview it doesn't just change how you look at the future, it changes how you look at and live in the present moment now. That even now, before my Yeshua, before Hashem has answered me, in this second before redemption, I'm already engaged in the process of my redemption. And there are no setbacks and there are no detours because everything that happens is only part of the process. It's a big question how Hashem could have even destroyed the Beis HaMikdash. In Halacha, it says you're not allowed to destroy a shul, let alone destroy the Beis HaMikdash. And we know the Medrash tells us, that Hashem only commands us to do His rules, the rules that He Himself keeps. So what about that? Hashem destroyed the biggest shul that ever existed. He destroyed the Beis HaMikdash. You're going to tell me, no, Nebuchadnezzar did it? Hashem himself says, I sent Nebuchadnezzar. He was my shliach. Hashem admits he did it. 
So how do you, how do you explain the whole thing? You look in Shulchan Aruch, Eirech Chaim, Kufnun Base 152, and over there the Ramah explains the only time you're allowed to destroy a shul if you're doing demolition for construction. The only way Hashem was permitted to take apart the base of Migdash is if he was in the middle of building a much bigger, better one. The only way Hashem was allowed to put you through any type of discomfort, even if we're talking about so much as a paper cut, was not so at the end of it all he could hug you and say, sweetie, it's all better now. Don't tell me it's better now. Why did I go through it until now? Dima imha koilo. You have to look at the moments of pain within the big picture. If redemption and the good times are only something that's going to happen after reality as we know it, then why are we going through it now? Redemption and the good times have started already. From the moment that creation began, the redemptive process began. The spirit of Hashem hovered over the waters, like it says in Bereshis, in the description of creation. What did Chazal tell us? That the spirit of Hashem that was present in the world from day one of creation was the spirit of Mashiach. So what's more real? The bus, because it came yesterday and the day before and the day before that? Or Mashiach? Because the entire reality as we know it has only been, every moment of it has only been one big process of culminating in this incredible revelation where the physical world will be holier than heaven, where the greatest revelation of God will be here on earth, where the greatest experience of godly revelation will be not disembodied souls in paradise, but souls in bodies. The ultimate paradox of the finite and the infinite merging, which ultimately is the only true infinity. <laughs> you can wrap your head around that. Infinity, which excludes finitude, is still excluding something, so it's not true infinity. So true infinity is when the infinite can coexist with the finite. So God is not spiritual or material. He's infinite. He's above both classifications. So what's the ultimate revelation of godliness when there will be the spiritual and the material, the finite and the infinite, soul and the body completely harmonized? Which is why the ultimate purpose of it all takes place in the physical world in its completely refined state. And that everything we've experienced as a nation and as individuals has been part of that process of refining the physical world.
there's, there's a letter in the Igros Kodesh. I don't know how many people studied with me. Uh, before Yud Aleph Nissen, we did 30 letters in 30 days. If you haven't had a chance yet to do that, it's on YouTube and on soulwords.org and on Spotify and it's on all the platforms. It's on Torah anytime. But uh, learning the Rebbe's Igros, the Rebbe's letters, correspondences. I tell people all the time that I, for eight years I wrote a column in Ami, an advice column, and I had never seen a real advice column. I didn't know how to write one, so I just stole the style from, <laughs> from Igris Kodesh, and it, it worked. People seemed to like it. But if you want the real original advice column, it's, it's the Rebbe's Igris. So there, there's a letter in the Igris. Actually, the date is Yud Aleph Nissen, the Rebbe's birthday from uh, Tovshin Tezayin from 1956. And the Rebbe is writing to the president, then president, I think longest serving president of Israel, uh, Yitzchak Ben Tzvi. And the Rebbe apologizes to him for not addressing him with his official governmental title of Nasi. You know, there's Rosh HaMem Shalah, the prime minister, and there's Nasi, the president. So the Rebbe says, I'm sorry that I'm not addressing you with that title, but that word, nasi, or nasi, we would say nasi, how we would pronounce it. That word nasi, the Rebbe says in this letter, has very particular meaning to me. And it's impossible for me to use it out of context. You see, a nasi, in nasi is a leader of the Jewish people. Mashiach is called a Nasi, who has no authority over him but God himself. And so I've been saving that term for a real Nasi. And the Rebbe apologizes and says, I know that you're an Ish Emes, you're a real guy, and you wouldn't want me to flatter you, so I'm telling you as it is. But in this letter, there's a very rare glimpse into the Rebbe's personal life. Very rarely did the Rebbe speak about himself. The Rebbe says how deeply rooted that vision of, of redemption is for him. And describes something deeply personal. The Rebbe says there, from the day that I went to Cheder, and even before, the vision of the complete and final redemption of our people and the world began to take form in my mind. Okay, the Rebbe is describing as a little toddler. He was already imagining what the world is going to look like when Mashiach is here. And then the Rebbe continues and says, Such a redemption that all the pain and the suffering and the persecution of our people will be sufficiently placed into context so that we will be able to say to Hashem, like the prophet says, Hashem I thank you, Hashem, for having chastised me, for having acted angrily toward me. Not only, you understand what that, what that verse means, not only when redemption comes will I say, thank you, Hashem, for saving me from all of this pain. When Mashiach comes, 
I will be able to thank Hashem for the pain. Sounds sadistic. Yeah, if pain is just pain. But if it's part of a process, if it's not destroying the field, it's plowing it for greater growth. If it's not destroying the building, it's demolition for a greater building project. then I can finally thank Hashem that every moment of my life, especially those moments that at the moment maybe I rejected or I wanted to reject, I didn't want to show up for that moment of my reality because of how painful it was, even those moments, especially those moments, will have special meaning to me. I will cherish it all as a necessary, indispensable part of the redemptive process. So this is what I want you to understand. Mashiach isn't something that comes after reality as we know it and makes it all better. Mashiach is an understanding right now that the present is a completely different type of reality than what our five senses are telling us. Not to deny your five senses. Remember, we're not saying that the material world has to become an illusion in order for the spiritual world to be true. What we're saying is there's more than meets the eye. There's more than we can see right now. In the spiritual world, it's all mapped out already. In the material world, we're only experiencing it one snapshot at a time. There was a philosopher who said, how do you define time? He said, time is that which keeps everything from happening at once. So down here, we're trapped in the time-space continuum. We only experience reality one snapshot at a time. But if you have a spiritual worldview, that means that you can see the purpose of it all even while the process is still working itself out. It's not that good times are coming. It's that good times are here. It's not that when Mashiach comes, there will all of a sudden be a radical change from reality as we know it. But to the contrary, everything that was going on will finally click into place and will say, ah, that's what it was all about. I wish I had figured that out earlier. Well, I got news for you. Today is an opportunity. Yarizal's yard site. 450th yard site. It's got to be worth something, right? Today is a day when we can start to appreciate that good times are here. And that even when we're going through what we perceive as setbacks, even when we're going through what we perceive as pain, it's part of a process. And Hashem would never put us through it if it weren't necessary, and if it weren't going to lead to something greater than what he could have led us to if he would have taken us through the comfortable, easy route.
You guys still following? I still only said the same point that I said from the very beginning, right? I was consistent or I switched it on you? What did I say at the very beginning? I told you the joke. Rabbi, I trust you. I trust you. And then I said, what's, what's betochen is trust. What's trust in 30 seconds? Living as if it's right now. It's a state of mind and heart where before you see what you know you're going to see, you're already living as if you've seen it. Isn't that what I said at the beginning? Now I'm just explaining it. I told you one point at the beginning, and I, stick, I stuck to that point. I'm just explaining it. There's a, a story about uh, the ten martyrs, Sarehirugi Malchus, that's in the Machser. On Yom Kippur, on Yom Kippur davening, uh, we read about the ten martyrs. One of the things it says over there is that at one point, the brutality was so intense. I mean, I'm not going to get into the graphic descriptions, but it describes pretty graphically how the sages were tortured and killed. And at one point, the brutality is so much that even the angels in heaven can't stomach it, so to speak. And they cry out, this is Torah and its reward. This is Torah and its reward. These are sages, scholars of the Torah, and now they're meeting such a gruesome end. So uh, a heavenly voice comes out and silences the angels and tells them, not another word, or I'll turn the world back into nothingness. What, what, what kind of a response is that? Somebody asks a valid question, and they're not asking the question to make trouble. It's coming from a sincere place. The, the angels are witnessing something that is shocking, and they express that. It doesn't make sense to us that Sages are being tortured in this manner. And the response is, you be quiet, and if you keep it up, I'm going to take apart the entire world. Oh, see, I touched a nerve. Right? When the student asks a question that the teacher yells at him for, he must have asked a pretty good question. So what's up with that? So there's a, a parable told about a king who had a subject who was a tailor. And the king liked the tailor. He was friends with the tailor. And of course, the king had an advisor who was a bad guy. And the bad guy was jealous of the king's relationship with the, with, with the tailor. The king told the tailor, make me a, a suit out of a fine bolt of cloth, which I will provide for you. The king bought this material, very rare material that only the king could buy. Very, very precious, very expensive material. He gave him the bolt of cloth. And he said, make me a suit. So um, so the tailor goes and he makes the suit for the king. 
And uh, he brings it back to him. And the king tries on the suit. He loves it. He loves the suit. King says to the tailor, uh, I love the suit. The advisor is getting really jealous. He comes over to the king and he says, ask him for the extra cloth. You know, because when you make a suit from a pattern, that's how you make anyone here as a seamstress knows that the, you cut from a pattern, you cut out of the cloth, and then there's scraps. So it's a, it's a known thing. The tailor's supposed to give you back the, the parts of the cloth that he didn't use. So the advisor tells the king, ask the tailor where's the extra cloth. He didn't give you any extra cloth. He's stealing from you. Remember, it was really expensive material. So the king hears this, and he, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I got a point. So he says to the tailor, listen, uh, I paid for the cloth. I gave you the cloth. You kind of owe me the cloth. Where's the extra cloth? So the tailor says, uh, no problem. I'll show you where it is. Give me your hand. The king reaches out his hand, and the, the, king, the tailor takes a pair of scissors. And he goes to the seam of the new suit, and he's about to cut the first stitch. The king recoils. He says, what are you doing? This is a beautiful new suit. I love it. Don't cut it up. So the tailor says, I kind of knew that your advisor was going to make trouble. So here's what I did. I, de I designed a pattern for this suit that utilizes every single square inch of the original bolt of cloth. There is no extra cloth. Normally there's extra. There is no extra here. It's all used in your suit. But to prove it to you now, I have to cut along the stitches, and I have to undo your whole suit, and then I'll lay it out on the table in front of you, and you're going to see the entire original bolt of cloth there. Every single square inch of it is there and accounted for because it's all in the suit. So the king says, you know what? I believe you. <laughs> Leave it alone. Don't cut up my suit. I like this suit. So that, that's a parable. What's the lesson? The angels are watching a snapshot. The brutalization of the sages. And they cry out, how can this exist in your world, God? And God answers them truthfully. You want to know the answer to how... This moment makes sense. Okay, I'm going to have to undo the entire reality. I'm going to have to return it to its pre-created non-existence. I'll have to take you back to toyuvavayu, to void and nothingness. And from that perspective, you'll be able to see how every square inch of cloth, so to speak, how every moment of reality is accounted for and was planned and was indispensable. But if you're in reality already as it's unfolding in the time-space continuum, if you're already in creation, you can't see it. Just like you can't see the entire bolt of cloth when it's in the form of a suit. You can wear the suit, but you can't see how it's a complete intact bolt of cloth. So what's, uh, 
We're going to break for lunch in a minute. Let's be talking. Is knowing that even right now, the suit is a complete bolt of cloth. Everything is here already. The good times are here now. Yes, as we're living it, souls and bodies, it unfolds as a process. But I promise you where the process ends up, and if you know that that's how it all ends, then you can relax now. You can act as if now. Rabbi, I trust you. I trust you. You don't have to wait to hear the boring speech that puts you to sleep. You start sleeping as soon as the rabbi gets up to the podium. You don't have to wait until Mashiach arrives and everything makes sense. You can start feeling that way now. Hashem doesn't need our worry. It's not productive. But deeper than that, if these kinds of things matter to you, and I assume you do if you came here for a day of learning, not only is our worry not productive, it's a fundamental denial of the nature of God's reality. Why are we worrying when the process is always on track? It all ends up perfectly fine. And every moment comes out not only as, like I said, Hashem takes away the pain, but we finally get to see how the pain itself was part of the process. So we can relax now. We can be happy now. We can enjoy life now. If your life is on hold right now because of some problem that you're going through, some challenge, marriage, your kids, health, finances, whatever it is. Unfortunately, until Mashiach comes, we do have those experiences. What I'm telling you is that it's possible, and it's true, it's aligned with truth, to be at peace right now. To not feel that your life is on hold until whatever it is gets resolved. Your life's not on hold until whatever it is gets resolved. Your life is moving. It's in flux. You're alive right now. This is part of your story. In fact, apparently a pretty darn important part of your story for it to be worth it and justified to be going through discomfort. 
Because Hashem would not put you through discomfort if it weren't necessary. The most edifying definition of bitochen I ever saw was in a letter from the Rebbe to somebody. I don't know what they were worried about. But the Rebbe says, you need more bitochen. And in case you don't know what bitochen is, I'll tell you what it is. You know that feeling of complete relief that you're going to have when your current troubles are finally behind you? Bitochen merely means having that feeling now. Let's breathe. Just relax. We're in good hands. It's good now. It's getting better. It's getting even better. But it, it's good now. Tell you my favorite story in the whole world, and then we'll break for lunch. My favorite story in the whole world, and I love it because there's nothing dramatic in it. There's no potets. There's no dungeon. <laughs> it's like the most boring story in the world. It's actually just a bunch of people talking. My favorite story in the world. And every time I hear it, I like it more. The Talmud Amagid were sitting around having a, uh, what do they call it, DMC. Right? DMC, Deep Meaningful Conversation. And uh, they were discussing the subject, what would you do if you were Hashem? So, uh, Lev Yitzchok Bedechever said, you know, he was very loving and kind. He said, you know, if I were Hashem, I would create the world with more chesed, with more loving kindness, the world would be a gentler place. The Pinchas Koritzer, who's known for his tough disposition, he said, you know, if I were Hashem, I would create the world with more gvura, with more divine discipline, so that the wicked people wouldn't be able to cause any problems. And the Balatanya, Shner Zalman said, if I were Hashem, I would create the world exactly as Hashem is creating it right now. <laughs> you understand? Not if Hashem were me. If Hashem were me, <laughs> the world would look very different. If I were Hashem, meaning if I had infinite wisdom, if I had infinite perspective, if I truly knew exactly what is good for everyone, and I was able to pull it off in a way where everyone had the best possible growth experience, and to put together a universe where every single entity in that creation had the most complete and fulfilling and meaningful story and to put it all together as one reality. If I could do that, you know what reality would look like? Open your eyes and look around. You're looking at it. 
You're looking at it right now. This is what I want you to understand. We don't have to close our eyes and deny reality in order to relax and to feel Hashem's love and protection. Open your eyes. Look around. We're living in the perfect moment now. Now that's faith, not fatalism. Fatalism means whatever is the way it is right now is always going to be that way. It's not true. Things are in flux. Things grow. And there are some areas of our lives that are in a plowing phase right now. I'm not going to deny that. There are some things in our lives right now that are in the demolition phase and not the rebuilding phase just yet. There's a sign in front of certain areas of our lives that says, pardon our dust while we renovate. So it doesn't mean that everyone's gonna, everything's going to stay the same. No, no, no. Things are moving, and they're, they're working themselves out, and everything is culminating in a, in a healthy, positive outcome for everyone involved. So things are growing. Things are in flux, only for the better. But what I'm saying is now is a perfect now. Not a second from now, because a second from now is a different now. But now is perfect for right now. Okay, you want a break for lunch? What? Look at my phone. The next session will be starting at 1.15. We're going to push it a little late because I spoke too long. I didn't see anyone falling asleep. And we want to thank the ladies of Evergreen for making this lunch possible. Okay, we'll break to 1.15. Okay, a couple of orders of business as we start our second session. First of all, as uh, Mrs. Pevsner mentioned, we are going to do Q&A, so if you have a question, you can write it down, and uh, we'll, God willing, we'll get to it. Also, people may have noticed that there are these books. This is The Gate of Trust, English translation of Shara Betochen along with commentary that was put out by the editorial staff of Chayenu, which is a Torah periodical for daily Torah study. And uh, this particular book, Gate of Trust, as you may notice if you look in the fine print at top, it says the Felig edition. I believe later at the end of this session we're going to be joined by a special guest who uh, was involved in the publishing of this groundbreaking work, and we're going to talk a little bit to him about, about the book. People who are on the other side of the mechitza and talking, even though you can't see us, we can definitely hear you. I know that you can't see us, but we can hear you. Okay. Much better. Okay. 
We spoke about a lot of deep stuff during the first session, and there are probably a lot of questions that that evoked, and there will be Q&A at the end, God willing. But before we get to the Q&A, I wanted to talk a little bit about the particular text, Shar HaBitochen, of the Chayvis Halavaves of Rebbeinu Bechaye. Rebbeinu Bechaye ibn Pakuda, not to be confused with Rebbeinu Bechaye ben Asher. Rebbeinu Bechaye ben Pakuda ibn Pakuda, to use the Arabic title properly, lived in Spain about a thousand years ago, from 1050 to 1120. Common Era. And he composed a book called Chavis Halavavis, which means duties of the heart, as opposed to the duties of the limbs. Duties of the limbs refer, refers to the behavioral code of Judaism, the things that you have to do, how to observe Jewish ritual. Chavis Halavavis, duties of the heart, is talking about the emotional aspect of Judaism, what you're supposed to feel. And there are 10 sha'arim, 10 gates or sections of Cheves Lavaves. One of those sections is known as Shara Betochen, the gate of trust, and it's all about the subject of trust. And I'm going to take a look at the text a little bit. Now, if you're looking for a real in-depth class on Shara B'tochen, I will recommend, <laughs> here's a little self-promotion, but uh, there's a 46-class series that I did on Shara B'tochen. We go through the entire text, every single word of it. We read it in Hebrew. We translate into plain English. And uh, you can find that on soulwords.org, you can find that on YouTube, you can find it on Torah Anytime, you can find it on all your favorite podcast platforms like Spotify and Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. But we're just going to give you a little taste today of Shara B'tochen. In the beginning of the book, there's uh, an introduction, there's a hakdama. And Rebbeinu Bechaya tells us something very interesting about Bitochen. He tells us that Bitochen is essentially a choice, these are my words, regarding the narrative that we tell ourselves about reality and the kind of life that we're going to experience. I'll just read a few words from the actual uh, introduction. He says, if one does not trust in Hashem, 
he trusts in something other than Hashem. And someone who trusts in something other than Hashem, Hashem removes his hashgacha, his supervision from that person. And places him under the dominion of that within which he trusts. Let's talk about that a little bit. If you're not trusting in Hashem, then you're trusting in something else. It's a very interesting formulation because I think many times we labor under the assumption that the options are trusting in Hashem or just not trusting at all. But it's not true. There's no such thing. If you don't trust in Hashem, you're trusting in something. Well, what does that mean? We, <laughs> we place our trusts our trust in things without even realizing that that's what we're doing. Remember we're talking about in the first session the, the materialist worldview, the reductionist worldview, that all reality can be reduced to physicality, physical phenomena, and that which I can experience with my five senses. Well, you might think that that's devoid of any particular value system, but the truth is, living that way is implicitly a vow of loyalty to a very particular uh, uh, value system. If you operate under the assumption that what you experience is real, that's a belief. If you operate under the assumption that what you gather and interpret based on your five senses is meaningful, that's an assumption. That's a trust. So someone who's not trusting that Hashem runs the world, it's not that he has no trust. He does have trust. He trusts that Nature runs the world. Or some people, the way they call it today, cause and effect runs the world. It is a belief. It is a form of trust. I know in the past, in human history, polytheism was much more popular. I would even say rampant. So when people didn't trust in Hashem, they chose an idol to believe in. But just because one does not believe in an idol doesn't mean one hasn't chosen an alternative God. Trusting your five senses to tell you about the nature of reality is an alternate belief system. So, Rabbeinu Bechaya tells us, if you don't trust in Hashem, you are automatically trusting in something else. 
In other words, I'll give you a different word for it. You are putting stock in another organizing principle of reality. Another way of answering the question, why? Why do things happen? Cause and effect. You do this, you get that. Or maybe your answer is, why do things happen? No reason at all. Entropy. Chaos. Which is also an explanation. And Rebbein Abachaya says, whatever your narrative is, whatever your explanation is for why things happen, that's going to become real to you. He says, when you stop trusting in God, you trust in something else, so Hashem places you under the dominion of that thing in which you are trusting. In other words, Hashem agrees with you. He backs you up. He gives you evidence to back up your belief. Now, we have to explain that. Because seemingly, that implies that there could be another reality that's not engineered and orchestrated by God. That the one who lacks trust in God is living in a reality that indeed is not run by God. Is that possible? Is, that even, is, is such a thing possible? So what's Rabbeinu Bechayat talking about? One of the things that I love about this book and is absolutely unique about this version of, of uh, Shara Betochen is that the commentary not only has all of the classic commentaries, all of the famous commentaries on Shara Betochen, but in addition it has Hasidic commentary taken from the Rebbeim of Chabad, and particularly a lot from the Lubavitcher Rebbe's Lakute Sichus. I'll just share with you uh, one little sample or taste. There's a Sicha, Lakute Sichus, Chelek Yud Ches, Parshas Kairach, that speaks about some very deep concepts in terms of Hashkocha Protis how Hashem's providence actually works. And among other things, this sicha deals with a seeming conflict between the Rambam in Meira HaNavuchim and Teiras HaBal Shemtiv. The Rambam in Meira HaNavuchim in the Guide to the Perplexed says that there are two types of Hashkocha, Hashkocha Protes and Hashkocha Klolis specific supervision and general supervision. So specific supervision means that Hashem is orchestrating every minute detail. Hashkocha klolis, general supervision means that it's not specific, it's general. So if there's a town with uh, a thousand people and ten of them are going to perish in a plague, God forbid, so the number is chosen. Which, which people are going to be the ten? We'll see. And he actually says that even in the human realm, 
only tzaddikim who have dveikas haseichel, who have a high level of God consciousness experience hashgacha pratis, and then the rest of the people don't, and then in, in the non-human realms of animal, vegetable, and mineral, then they certainly all operate under hashgacha klalas. So Hashem doesn't decide which stone is going to be used in that building, or which tree is going to grow in that field. He decides a tree is going to grow there, not which tree. That's how the Rabbam explains it in Meirah HaNevuchim. Of course, the Baal Shem Tev believes in radical Hashgacha practice, not just that Hashem is supervising details, but to the extent that, I'm sure you've all heard this little story about the leaf falling from the tree and twisting in the wind. That's real Hashgacha practice. And it's not just in the realm of humanity, it's even for lower levels of creation as well. So which one is it? Remember I told you in the first session, if there's a Jewish question formulated as, is it this or is it that? What's the answer? It's yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> okay. So how do we explain that it's both? The Rebbe explains the hashgacha chitzayni and hashgacha pnimi. The inner and the outer hashgacha. Shaman, we're good? Video's good? Yeah. We're live streaming right now. <laughs> Can something be true and we, and we don't know it? Now I'm asking, can something be true and we don't know it? Yeah, sure. Does our not knowing it make it less true? No, okay. So here, here's how the Rebbe explains this, and I'm oversimplifying. There's a subjective reality and there's an objective reality. The subjective reality is based on the narrative that we choose. So if we believe the world is subject to cruel, random fate, that will be our experience. And the events of our lives will reinforce that belief. In fact, the events of our lives will have an uncanny ability to constantly remind us and reinforce for us that pre-existing belief. How does that happen? How do the events of our lives so perfectly reinforce our pre-existing belief? What's making our life line up in that way that reinforces our confirmation bias? Or should I say, who is orchestrating our life so impeccably that every detail of it is reinforcing what we're already looking for? Who's doing this? Hashem! If you tell Hashem, Hashem, you don't run the world, Hashem says, no problem. I'm now going to meticulously orchestrate 
a reality for you in which it appears I do not run the world. So even in Hashem not running the world, he's running the world. <laughs> Probably shouldn't share this, but... <laughs> huh? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm conflicted whether I should share this for a number of reasons, but there, there's a, a documentary about a, a serial killer. He was a, a mob hitman. He killed thousands of people, so he claims. And they called him the Ice Man because he showed no emotion. And they interviewed him in prison, and he was talking about these gruesome murders. And he spoke about it so nonchalantly, like it was nothing. And there was one time when he showed any internal conflict. He said that he was about to murder a guy, and the guy started begging him not to kill him. And then the guy started praying. So this hitman, the ice man, says to the guy, this is terrible, he says to him, oh, you think God's going to save you? Okay, no problem. Pray for 10 minutes. And it, if, if God saves you, he saves you. And if not, I'm killing you at the end of the 10 minutes. He says, this guy was praying for 10 minutes Praying his heart out. In the end of 10 minutes, I told him, I guess God didn't answer, and I killed him. And then at that moment, it's very interesting, just for a, a split second, you see something behind his eyes that you don't see the rest of the time. You see this inner conflict, this, just this twinge of, of, of guilt or remorse, and he says, I shouldn't have done that. That was it. And then he goes on describing gruesome murders. It struck me. The fact that this guy he murdered was murdered in the end, even after he prayed, that, unfortunately, that happens. That happens in the world. But what was fascinating to me is the punishment of this murderer. The only murder, it seemed, that bothered him from all the thousands of murders was that one. Because at that moment, what did he do? To himself. To himself. He placed himself in a completely godless world. And you could tell he didn't like that. Even though I suppose for him to believe in a world run by God would mean for him to believe that he was headed for some punishment. But you could tell it bothered him that at that moment he proved to himself that there is no God. And it disturbed him. In other words... Whatever happened to the guy who got murdered, okay, that was supposed to happen. I, I don't mean to say it flippantly. It's, 
terrific. But what happened to the murderer in some ways is even more profound. He basically created an experiment and conducted an experiment that would prove that there is no God and he got his results. And now he has to live with them. Now, we all know who orchestrated that moment. Hashem. For whatever reason, in his divine wisdom, this guy was the murderer and this guy was, was the murder victim. Like, like our sages tell us, why does it happen that some guy falls off of a ladder and inadvertently he lands on somebody and kills him? And then the guy who fell has to go into the cities of refuge. So they tell us that Hashem works it out that this guy was a murderer and there were no witnesses and he's really liable for capital punishment. And this guy was a murderer but it was inadvertent and there were no witnesses and he's really liable to go into exile in the cities of refuge. So Hashem works it out that these two guys stay at the same inn at Pundak Achas, at the same inn, at the same tavern, and they meet each other, and this guy falls on this guy, so this guy gets his capital punishment, and this guy gets sent into exile. Hashem works it out for everybody. So somehow, not that it makes it less horrific, but there is divine justice in that. But what's to me, much more disturbing is the psychological torment that the denier is able to bring upon himself by espousing a narrative that there is no hashgacha, there is no divine supervision, there is no detailed providence, and then Hashem reinforces that for the person. So the detailed providence reinforces the position that there is no detailed providence. So, the Rebbe is explaining over there that Rambam is talking about the subjective experience. <laughs> the Baal Shem Tev is talking about the objective reality. The subjective experience the way it feels, the way it looks, is it's all random, it's cruel fate, because that's what you were looking for, confirmation bias, Hashem's backing you up. And that's why the Rambam says it doesn't apply, Hashkoch protest doesn't apply to anything non-human, because a non-human entity doesn't have a consciousness. And then even within humans, the Rambam says that it only applies to tzaddikim, because in order to be able to have such a subjective point of view, you have to be very spiritually refined. So what the Rambam is saying is, Hashkacha Pratis is the subjective experience only for a select few. The Baal Shem Tev is reporting the reality that even if you don't see it, even if that's not your experience, the objective truth remains that everything is Hashgah Pratis, not only for you and all humanity, but even for 
the vegetative, the animal, the inanimate, even the buzzing of subatomic particles inside of an atom. Every movement is divinely orchestrated. Ah, so back to Shara B'tochen. You would read a line like this in Shara B'tochen on your own, and he says, if you don't believe in Hashem, then automatically you believe in something else. And that something else that you believe in, Hashem will now put you under the dominion of that something else. You're left with a big theological question. Oh, what, you mean there are other something else's that can run the world other than Hashem? Comes Chassidus and explains what that means. Without Chassidus, uh, he'd be left with a major question. What does it mean? Hashem puts you under the, the dominion of these things? No. It means Hashem allows you, not only allows, co-creates with you the reality that you've chosen. However, what's the good news? What's the good news? The good news is that when you realize that even the seemingly godless world you live in was divinely orchestrated for you, from there, it's a much more logical next step to start believing again. In fact, all the evidence I was given to make me not believe, I realize, is evidence that I should start believing. Because who could, <laughs> who could orchestrate in such an uncanny way a reality that would reinforce my confirmation bias so well? It, it, it would have to be divinely orchestrated. Okay, that's just one. One example of uh, one of the ideas in Shara B'tochen as explained in Chassidus. Um, I'm wondering, maybe we should do this. I know there's Q&A, and I see that my friend, uh, let me just see, what does it say here? Felig edition. Uh, my friend uh, Getsy Felig is here. So maybe if we'll pull up a chair and a second mic, he'll join me up here. We'll talk a little bit about this book. Can we? Uh, three, two, one, motion. Yisrael, Shammai, these guys are the best. Yeah, I'll move over. Shalom Aleichem. Your mic's not on yet. Murderers and enemy? Murderers and enemy? Murderers and enemy introduced me? It's maybe as a subconscious association. It wasn't deliberate. Okay. So, uh, I, we're good? Yisro? Yeah? You want to do a mic check? Nubgetsi, you want to do a, a mic check? Mic check. Perfect. Good? Okay. 
So we were talking about Shara Betochen and specifically about, oh, I should do the product placement right now. <laughs> At the front of the room, there are copies of this book for sale, right? There's still copies for sale? Yeah? Okay. So the copies of this book for sale uh, as you leave the room. I should also mention, I think names are being collected for a pawn, to bring a pawn to, to the oil to be read by the Rebbe. So if you want to leave your name um, at, on the pond, just is that also it's there? Yeah? Okay. You'll pass it around. Okay. You're passing it around. Okay. All right. So, Reb Getzi, this is, uh, this is your Chayva Salavavis. Mine. Yeah. <laughs> your, your name's not as big as Rebbeinu Ibn Pekuda, Rebbeinu Pekhaib Ibn Pekuda, but it is on the same cover page, so it must mean that uh, you endorse the book. <laughs> and I'm assuming that uh, it's based on personal experience. Actually, I know that it's based on personal experience. That's why I actually wanted you to join me, because I feel like sometimes rabbis can be very rabbi-like. Is that a redundancy? Is that a truism? Uh, and sometimes it's good to get a, another type of perspective. Because, you know, <laughs> If I tell you that the Shara Betochen is uh, all that in a bag of chips, you'll say, well, you're a rabbi. You have to say that. You know, that's how you make your living. But uh, I figured I'll have somebody normal <laughs> and see if he agrees with me. So uh, just uh, maybe tell us a little bit how Shara Betochen entered your life and how you ended up making the book enter so many more people's lives. Sure. First of all, thank you very much for the organizer for having, uh, organizers for having myself and Rabbi Taub. Uh, events like this are uh, at the founding point of why it is that my wife and I got involved in this project, and I'll share a little bit about that with you. But uh, I will tell you for a fact that uh, some of you, if not all of you, hopefully, your lives will change, guaranteed, for the better. You may not realize it today or tomorrow, but it will. And uh, it's not just because uh, we're selling a book, because <laughs> I'm not the publisher, I make no profit. It's because it really does change. I think it cost you a few bucks to make the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, on the way over here, another rabbi reached out to me on a text, and I, I don't know if you spoke about this before, but today's actually the 450th uh, yard site of the Arizal. And he was reminding me that the Arizal would have his students study Chayvus every day. And he wasn't the only one. The Vilna Gayan, the Chida, the Shalah HaKadosh, um, the Chafetz Chaim, the Babachar Abayim. I think almost every Chassidus that I've heard of has the Chayvus Ovavis in their repertoire or suggestive reading. So the Sefer itself was written over a thousand years ago, or about a thousand years ago, has literally been passed generation to generation from whatever segment of Judaism one was in, it had relevance. And I think that that in and of itself speaks volumes that today in 2022, I'm in the business world, Rabbi Taub is in the educational world, that two people from two different spectrums probably can come together and agree on a Sefer that really is... Uh, life-changing in things that you see and then things that I might see. So that being said, I want to just kind of go take a step back at how this whole thing began. And I, I will say that it's not just me, it's my wife and I, my wife Eliza. So anything I'm going to say is, uh, might point to my journey, but it really, I think I can say, is both of our journeys and our family. 
So going back about 17 years ago, um, my wife and I were married for just short of a year, and um, we found out that our first son had, uh, was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. And I was 21, she was 20, we were obviously new at this game, and clearly very new at the game of uh, being a special needs parent or parents. And it was uh, extremely emotional and confusing and not really sure where to go. And having grown up in a Chabad home, the first thing we did was we went to New York, to Queens, to the Ayel, to write a letter and ask for a blessing. And as is customary by some, afterwards, you can, there's uh, many volumes that the Rebbe, of letters that the Rebbe had sent over the years to different people. And they published, I don't know how many volumes it is, maybe it's 30 or 40, I'm not really sure how many there are, but many, many, many volumes. And some have the custom of opening up the book and to try to find some kind of, you know, wisdom or answer or something to kind of walk away with. And we did, and we opened up to a letter, and it was a letter to a, I can't remember if it was a couple or an individual, and it was all about strengthening your trust, and that you have to learn this book called Chayvis Lovavis, which I had no idea what Bitochen was. I knew the English translation trust, it was translated for me, and I certainly had no idea what Chayvis Lovavis was, I never heard of it. Now at the time, I really didn't put much to it. In fact, my wife and I think we're probably just dizzy with emotion and trying to wake up in the morning. But what was most exciting at least or inspiring was that we went to the Eichel, we got some kind of letter about trust and it said at the end it should be good and it was, that was pretty much what took us you know, to the next day. And it kind of just fell through the cracks. And as my son's treatment began and our life was turned upside down or upside right, depends you know, from which angle you look at it, we began to, at different times, write or look for inspiration or learn something. And this concept kept on coming up to us again and again. Strengthen your betachen. And I told you to learn chayvis lavavis. Why didn't you learn chayvis lavavis? You're supposed to learn it not once but three times. And over a course of two years, and I, I actually thought I had these letters with me here in New York, but they're in storage. We had, I don't know, maybe ten of these different letters or different svarim that we, I came across that was the same topic. So really what kind of took it over was my son was having a surgery at one point and the letter was written to a couple about a surgery that they were gonna, one of them was gonna have and it said, stop worrying, I told you to learn already, learn already. So at this point I, I, I kind of got the hint and I, I bought the book. And Feldheim had a little... But not this book. No. This, this Sefer didn't exist yet. So this one was the Feldheim translation. It's probably at this point 30 years old. And it's a little pocket edition. And I bought it. I flipped through it. You know, now the word bitachon was on our minds as trust. What does trust really mean? I would, you know, ask whoever I thought can explain it to me to explain it to me. We weren't really engaged in the Sefer, maybe Yom Kippur afternoon when I was feeling particularly holy, I would read it, or if I was going through a, a rough patch, I would read a chapter. But again, there was not bridging the gap. I had the Sefer, I looked at it from time to time, and the closest thing I came was, I, I, someone explained to me that Amuna is like a tree, and Betachen is like the apple. Is if you have a Muna, which means if you're a tree, not necessarily are you going to have an apple, which is Betachen. But if you have a Betachen, which is your apple, you certainly have a Muna, which is your tree, because you can't have one without the other. Which was great, because now I knew that I hardly had a Muna, and I certainly didn't have Betachen, and that was perfect. <laughs> no you know, that, tree, no there apple. There was nothing happening, so that was very good. <laughs> That's from the Ramban, by the way, that Marshall. Uh, <laughs> so there you go, yeah. sourced. That's yeah. makes but you didn't team. have it. That's why we make a good team. That's what you didn't have. I did not have either. <laughs> okay. So then comes an interesting point that uh, wasn't a letter, but was actually a dream. 
And I don't know, I think I, I may have alluded to this in a previous discussion, but I don't think I've ever told it out, you know, publicly. But basically, I was living in Atlanta with my wife at the time and our children, and we were going through a very, very difficult time financially. And we weren't sure if we just stay in Atlanta or we should move to Miami and get involved in community work by my father, who was a Chabad Shliach in Coconut Grove. And it was very confusing. I was working on an opportunity that I knew was about to hatch, and as soon as it hatched, I was going to be a billionaire, retired, life was going to be fantastic, but it wasn't hatching. And in the meantime, it was a struggle. And I fell asleep one afternoon, because that's what you're doing when you're trying to hatch a plan and not employed. And I had a dream. And I was in 770. Now, I'd never had a dream like this before. I'm not a big dreamer. Um, but I was in 770. And I knew it was 770, but it was a different 770, because it was a clean 770. <laughs> and there was stained glass. <laughs> and there was this beautiful light coming in from the windows. And there were everyone that was learning there, all the bachrim, I was in the men's section, had little short black you know, hats and like black glasses, and it looked like they were out of the 60s. So I realized I was in 770 in heaven. That's where I was. So I'm very excited, because now I'm thinking, this is my first opportunity. The Rebbe's got to be here somewhere, right? And he's, this is his spot. And I'm looking, and suddenly there's a big, there's a big noise in, in the room. And they say the Rebbe's coming. He's coming down to go to his, his place in 770. If you're familiar, he has an area where he would dive into the corner. And suddenly everyone's spreading away, and I'm like, I, I'm like heaving. I can't believe my luck here. I'm, I'm having a dream. I know I'm having a dream. I'm in 770. The Rebbe's coming. I'm here. Perfect That's it. Timing. He's going to tell me what to do about Atlanta, <laughs> you know, what the winning. I, I'm going crazy. But my luck, as everything's separating, I, I can't get in front of the line because there's so many people there. And I'm trying to push, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm such a moron. I'm finally here. And he, the Rebbe's going to walk by. I'm not going to see him. He's not going to see me. And it's over. And then I'm going to be the guy that said, I had a dream. The Rebbe walked by. <laughs> so I got very depressed. And as the Rebbe starts to walk by, and I'm thinking that this is my doom and gloom, the Rebbe stops, and he turns to me, and he parts the crowd, and he tells me to come over. And I'm like, I just burst out crying. And I'm like, I, I'm standing by the Rebbe like, like this distance, I'm like, ah, I have a kid, special needs, I'm broke, I don't know what to do, Miami, my wife, my kid, my life, I, I, ah, I'm, I'm just, my whole life is just crying out of me. And the Rebbe looks at me with a big smile, and he says two words, well, three. He says, Getzel, which is my name, Betachen Besimcha. And then he walks away, and he smiles. And I wake up. Now, the word Betachen, I, at this point, knew, which I didn't have any. So that I got. The besimcha part, I didn't understand at all. And I asked a few people, and no one really had heard that combination of words before, betach and besimcha. So no, okay, maybe be happy about trust. But after that dream was the first time that I kind of looked again at this sefer and at this concept and this message that had been being delivered at that point for probably the better part of six years, and my wife and I made a decision, we're going to go to Florida, it's going to be good, let's just go there, it'll work out. And that was my first Betachen story, because when I got to Florida, I had no money. And I had just starting a new job, just trying to get back on my feet. And a friend of mine told me, you have to buy a house. Just buy a house. I had no credit, no down payment, nada. He said, just buy it. Okay, so I started looking for a house, I found the house, I made the offer on the house, the, house, the offer was accepted, but I still had no way to pay for it, or put the deposit down, or get a mortgage, or anything else. And like out of a magical, fantastical movie, or a book, I get 
a call that this thing I was working on in Atlanta just came through. And even though you left, there's a big whopping check that's on its way to you. So where should we send it? I said to the lawyer for my deposit on my house because I don't have any money. And that was probably the first time that I felt and saw with my own eyes that when you let yourself go and really just trust in Hashem, ma magic happens. Magic. <laughs> when they say abracadabra is really a uh, Kabbalistic right. Hebrew word. So, it means Hashem speaking the world into being. Exactly. So magic. Yeah. And let me see. So sometime thereafter, my wife and I at this point understood clearly that this was a major part of our life. And every morning we started to learn a page of the Feldheim version of the Sefer together. We tried to do it before the kids woke up and before everything started. And I would say that, that is, if there's anything you're going to do, that's probably the best advice to take away from, from this whole thing, is trying to learn a little bit every day. And for Shalom Bias, if you can do it with your, your other half, it's even more powerful. So giving Betochen and Shalom Bias advice, it's two for one. It's a two for, for sure. And since it's right in the morning, and hopefully before your kids wake up, so there's two things that happen. You have a cup of coffee with it. So you say the bracha shahakol nihiya bidvare, which literally means... It's going to be the way he wants it to be. And then you open the Safer, and before your text messages, or if you're working your emails, or your kids are nagging for breakfast, or the lunches, or the school notes, etc., when you can start your day with the foundation that everything that's about to come my way is for the best, and Hashem created, I mean, He knows exactly what I need, it's, it's unbelievable how your day will change. Unbelievable. It will literally be flipped upside down. And when you engage in whatever positive or seemingly not positive thing, you'll go back to it and it's, it's very strengthening. Now, it's not a magic pill. I just want to jump in right yeah. here because you said something very, very big and it, people might just gloss over it. The detail that you gave specifically about doing it first thing in the morning. That this is key. Remember we were talking about in the first session that there are two ways of looking at reality, two different, two different narratives for reality. You could say, what's real? What I see with my senses or what Hashem has told us. You know, which, which, which is more real? If you don't check in first thing with a Torah alignment for how reality really works, if you don't plug yourself in first thing in the morning, then before you know it, all the you're going to get bombarded by all the stimuli of the world, and it's going to set you up to already assume that the chazaka, the presumption is that reality is whatever my senses are telling me. But if you can check in first thing and align yourself with a more spiritual view, and then go out into the world, then you have best of both worlds, because you'll see the real physical stuff, you'll see it from a spiritual perspective where you realize it's not a conflict, where it's all one Hashem and the spiritual and the physical. But you got to set up the spiritual first before you go out into the, into the material world. So I just want to stress, the cup of coffee and the sitting with your wife and in the morning. Absolutely. First whatever thing, time that happens. It should happen before the sun comes up, if possible. Now you're getting... Uh, just saying. <laughs> You want the, if, you, if you want the formula, if you probably a lot of babies at home, uh -huh. that's the way to do it. We have seven kids, Kanai and Hara, so we have to make it work. Okay. So 
when we started to really learn this every day, and, and I would say now this is already seven years ago, eight years ago, so we've probably learned it 40 times together, if not more, is we decided that we wanted to do something, because we knew we had to do something, to help with this book, Safer. A lot of the language in the, at the, the, of the English version that was out at the time, or that's still out by Feldheim, is antiquated, and many of the words we needed to you know, ask a Siri or go to Google and find out what it meant, and the thous and the shalls and the he's and the thous and the nots, and it's a little bit complicating. So we decided that we would get behind a new translation of the book, and being as though we know nothing about publishing or where to begin or how, what it costs or where to go or any of this, we figured it, it'll make sense somehow, and we'll figure it out. And around the same time, I got invited to go to JLI, and I had an idea. It was before COVID, so it was the uh, one in D.C. And the idea was I was going to meet a friend of mine there who was a presenter who was also an author. And I thought when I saw him there, I'd sit down with him and pitch him the, con the idea. He'd be a perfect author, and he certainly knows who to talk to about these types of things. You go to Cajas, you go here, you go there, what do you do? So my wife and I head to the event, and it's a beautiful event, and he speaks, and he sees me after the event, and we had been roommates in yeshiva, and say, oh my God, I'm here with my wife, and your wife, it's great, we should get together tonight, and we should all hang out and say hello and catch up, and I'll call you, and you'll call me, and it's wonderful. So there it is, I'm all set up for my big meeting, and that night at the, the time, he's not there. So I call his phone, his phone is off, and I'm waiting for like a half hour, or whatever the time that I hung out, and the guy does not show up. Okay, so of course, lost times to catch up with an old roommate, but also I knew that this conversation wasn't going to happen. So the next morning, I woke up, and uh, my wife and I are heading downstairs, which is the last part of the event, and we get into the elevator, and there's another gentleman, another couple with a baby in the elevator, and it's Yassi Pels from Chayenu. And Yassi's the director, or he's in charge of Chayenu, and they print this, this weekly booklet of learning, of English learning with the Hebrew uh, counterpart. And at the time, he was putting one page of Chayvis Hovavais in the weekly book, so that from Feldheim. And what he was doing that was different was that he was combining it with like a Hasidic thought on whatever the theme was. And it was just a project that was, in, you know, probably within 30 things that they, you know, that they cover on a weekly basis. So I said to him, by the way, I love what you're doing. I want to write a book. So he goes to me, I love what I'm doing too. We want to write a book. And I, this is like from the fourth floor to the first floor. I said, I don't know how much it costs to make a book because I never did one. He goes, either do I. I never did one either. I said, great, so we'll talk? He's like, yeah, we'll talk. So the elevator opens. He's excited. I'm excited. I now have a publisher for my book, and I don't know what it's going to cost or anything about it, but we've made some major progress. He makes a left, and then lo and behold, my friend walks towards me, gets the oh my God, last night my cell phone, it got burnt, it drowned, it had, you know, flew away, didn't work, I'm so sorry, I'm running to the airport now, I gotta get out of town, my flight leaves, and we'll see you next time. And that was that. And the rest was history, and the book was printed. And I'll say that, that what, what's, what's most amazing about this particular safer inversion, I would say, is, 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 is two things I wanna kind of... Before you talk about yeah. the book, the whole story that led to Shara Betochen, or this edition of Shara Betochen, is itself a story of Betochen. <laughs> because yeah, you had your plan. Your plan I didn't, didn't think about that. That's a good point. It didn't go the way you planned. Hashem had a better plan. And now we have the book. My wife's saying she knew that already. <laughs> I never thought of that. Okay, tell us about... So, yes, yeah, so I'll yeah. tell you a couple of, a couple of uh, thoughts that I, that I kind of, kind of important differentiators in general 
about this sefer and, and then, you know, why I think that Chayvis Avavais is, is extraordinarily um, different. So first of all, if, if you ever read or have learned any excerpts, he's the book is, is written very witty. He has an unbelievably sarcastic sense of humor. And I want to put this, remind you, it was written a thousand years ago. He has one line that I think is, underlines the sarcasm to its most. Is By the way, I heard it's even funnier in Arabic. Uh, in, no, the, really, in the original. The original, <laughs> a lot of people don't realize, even the Lashon Kodesh that we have is a translation of uh, Ibn Tibun. Actually, there, was a, there were a whole family of translators. The son of Ibn Tibun, who translated Shara Batochen, was the Ibn Tibun, that's the family name, who translated the Rambam's Meir HaNavuchim. So the, the, the Lashon Kodesh, the, the Hebrew that we have is Ibn Tibun. The original is Arabic. I spoke to a professor of Arabic studies, and I asked him about some of the language. And he said, yes, very much, that Rabbeinu B'chayah's style is very, like, Witty. It's uh, witty, yeah, witty. So he has this one line where he says, you know, I don't understand people that are worried about their fortune, about their money, because maybe they're going to die and then it'll be spent by their wife's next husband. <laughs> that's what he writes. Like, just, you're reading, and then he gives you, you know, five different sukkim, as, which he's careful to say, it's not so I'm proving to you that what I'm saying is true. It's just so you have a point of reference to remind yourself later. But he's constantly writing that. And he talks about, like, bribing children with candy, nice he goes, nice suits, or like a new stylish um, chariot, which is like, you know, and it's like talking about like buying a kid a car. It's just, he, the way he writes is, is very funny in, in certain ways. And he's also, he speaks to your dreamer. So in the very beginning, he talks about why having betachen is more powerful than an alchemist. And an alchemist, a thousand years ago, was maybe what you would call, I think you, 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 you use the comparison, as if someone prints money. Yeah, counterfeiter. Counterfeiter. Right, like, imagine right. if you had a printer in your house, right. how life would be so how great. You just, you need, just print just and everything it. would be great. Yeah. And he talks about that a thousand years ago for, for what was relevant. So his whole style is not, it's not a safer that you're diving into, that you have to try to translate what he could have possibly meant then and then maybe what it could mean today. It literally is it's a timeless piece. And I personally have never learned another safer that has that... You know what I think the funniest for me, now you're mentioning that you, you like Rebbein B'chayah's wit. To me, the funniest line in there, there's a zinger in there. The story about the guy who traveled yeah. to, you know, <laughs> to a town for, for, for business because he, he couldn't make a living where he lived. So he traveled to another town. And while he was there, he met an idol worshiper. He calls him the Amgoishi. He met this idol worshiper. And the idol worshiper asks the guy, who are you? And he says, uh, I'm a Jew, and I worship God who runs the heavens and the earth. And he says, well, you're contradicting yourself. He says, how am I contradicting myself? He said, you told me you believe God runs the heavens and the earth. He says, yeah. So the God who runs the heavens and the earth couldn't find you business in the town where you live? <laughs> you had to come here? It's a zinger. And the guy left. You had to come here. <laughs> and the guy turned around, and he left, and he took on a life of spirituality. That's right. Yeah, that's the rest of the story. So his writing style is very, it, it's very, I mean, it gets your attention. Um, and then I would say that the fact, again, going back to how I started, just with how many years this Sefer has been a center point of so many different areas of Yiddishkeit and constantly being utilized as not just something to strengthen 
the, these different Rabbanim and Rabbeim, their students, but they themselves utilized it as a tool to keep, to keep it going. So to me, that, that speaks volumes as to far, far as to how important it is to, uh, to bring it into your home. And it's, it's amazing to me that, you know, like the, that it's considered to be, many people have heard of it, many people have not learned it. A lot of people never heard of it nor learned it. And it's just unbelievable to me that somehow it got lost somewhere. And I don't know if that's only in Chabad or if it goes outside of Chabad, but it, it, it just, it's mind-blowing that this Sefer literally has been at the forefront of anybody who's been pushing people to help gain trust in Hashem. And somehow it, it, it got There has it got been blurred. a big, I'll call it renaissance, of interest in this book. And I, I hope it's okay for me to say that you've been, you and your wife are a big part of that happening. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was also a little part. I taught a class in it, so can I get applause? <laughs> Joking. Okay, at any rate, can we talk a little bit, um, we don't have a lot of time left, and I know people have babysitters to run to, um, but being that, as you, as you mentioned, that I'm in rabbinics and you're in business, maybe your... Maybe your testimony here will be, or your perspective here will be more appreciated. Can we talk, a than mine, can we talk a little bit about, because I haven't spoken about this yet, uh, Shara Betochen and its perspective on money, financial stability. Is a, could you, like, throw me something, a nugget, or a... Well, last week I had Betochen and I won the lottery. <laughs> it's not, not true at all. <laughs> Um, sure. So, you know what, I, I actually prepared a few different parts of the, that speak to me as it relates to business. I know that I'm speaking to a crowd that may or may not be engaged daily in business. Many of you are, I'm sure. Many of you have, have spouses or family members that are. But there's no question that the Chayvah Savavis speaks a lot to the financial struggle, to occupation, also to health and to, you know, to relationships. But financial, you know, the financial topic is, uh, is hot and heavy in this, in the Sefer. So for me, I would say there's two points that he discusses here and that the book also, Sefer brings commentary, a lot of commentary from Hasidic sources and other sources on these topics. And I'll, I guess I'll narrow it down to two, which is the first is, he discusses at length how to choose the right job how to figure out what is the right occupation to go into. You know, if we, if, if we are taught that, the, that a job is just a keli, it's just a vessel to which to receive what God's going to give you, and that's not the focal point of how it's going to get to you, well, what are you supposed to do? Maybe I should become a babysitter, or why, why become a rabbi? It's interesting you picked this, because when I teach this in seminary, uh, I've taught Shara B'Tochen in, in Beis Rivka Seminary in Crown Heights for a few years, this section is the one that surprises them the most. This part that you're talking about right now catches them off guard. They're not expecting Rebbeinu B'chayi to say what he says here. About choosing the job? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, go I ahead. I hope it's the right section. I'm not, I'm yeah, right. I'm sure it is. So he explains there how he actually looks at the animal kingdom and he says how... Yeah, the, this is the section. Okay, yeah. perfect. Good planning. Yeah. <laughs> so he says how the animal kingdom, if you look at the different animals... Every animal is created with the tools it needs to survive 
for its for its uh, instincts, right? So something that's a, a, a lion or a tiger that eats, you know, that uh, hunts other prey, it has it runs very fast. It has claws. It has teeth. Well, compare it to a cow. It doesn't have any of those uh, those those um, qualities. Cow wouldn't be a good hunter. Cow's not a good hunter. And he explains it's because a cow eats grass and a lion eats to chase the gazelle. So Hashem gives each of the the different creations that which it needs. So he says that. By human beings, God creates us with certain attraction to certain things. He creates us with a certain skill, whether it be a physical skill or an a emotional skill or a, a skill of the mind. And whatever we're attracted to or that we see that we have a strength in is where we should go. So he says, for example, if you're muscular and you're not of the... He uses also some witty uh, expressions there, but basically says, you know, you're more muscular and not strong in the mind... You know, look for something that's uh, labor-intensive and not necessarily uh, much thinking. But if you're a heady type of person, don't go to the field. Go work in accounting or something. And he uses many examples. And he says that's how you should actually find your job. Because Hashem created you with certain talent and certain abilities and certain attractions. If you're attracted to art, well, that's not just a mistake. That's where you belong, and that's where you can express yourself and do the avayda of having a job. So do you know why the seminary girls are shocked by this? I don't. Should I tell you? Please. They know that we say, we meaning the establishment, the rabbinical establishment, that the official perspective on making a living is it's just a vessel, it's just holding out a cup that Hashem will fill. And so they're absolutely certain that we will tell them it doesn't matter what cup you have, just take any old cup, doesn't, doesn't make any difference. They're shocked when they find out that not only you can, but you should find the vessel, the cleave for Parnosa, that is appropriate to your personality, your strengths, your abilities. They're shocked that a Torah perspective would take their individual story and background and personality into account. And that, but that's the whole concept of creating in that space something that another person cannot. If everybody was a rabbi, there would be a big well, I void. I wouldn't like that. No, that would be terrible for business. <laughs> it would be bad for business. Very bad. You know about the guys, the two tailors? No. There was one tailor who came to the other tailor and says, you know, I was in shul and the rabbi just gave a speech about Mashiach is coming and there's going to be Tchias uh, There's going to be resurrection of the dead. So I'm very excited because all the dead people are wearing tachrichen, they're wearing burial shrouds. We're tailors, we're gonna be in business. You know, we're gonna be able to put suits on all the resurrected people, so business is gonna be booming. So the other tailor says, no, you chokham, think for a second. In the resurrection is gonna be resurrected all the other tailors <laughs> from all the generations. It's gonna be terrible competition. He says, oh, you're right. He says, no, but we've got the latest styles. <laughs> Anyways, so not everyone could be a rabbi. So not everyone could be a rabbi. So you have to choose the occupation, which is followed by the next question. You have question. to have good jokes like that to be a rabbi. Absolutely good jokes. By the way, I was always thinking that the rabbi should write a joke book. That's a good idea. I don't know why you guys don't. You and YYJ together can write a great Delic joke. edition? Maybe. We'll talk. <laughs> so then the question becomes, how much time to spend at your job? Right? Okay, so I know now that I'm not just supposed to do any job because I have to use my talent and that it's a shkacha pratis that I'm doing that job. It gives me the ability to make an impact in that segment or sector or whatever it is. But now how much time should I spend? Should I work at the job from 9 to 2? 
is that enough betachen time? Is it you know, 12 to 3? And this question actually gets asked probably out of all the questions I've ever been asked. This is the biggest one. Wait, now it, you speak about another thing. What? So you were speaking about... I, well, I said once you find your job. Once you find. Now okay. how much time okay. should you spend at the job? Okay, now you found... What you're doing. What you're doing, where you can express your unique talents. But b before we move on to the next thing, where you're talking about how to figure out budgeting your time, I, I, just another comment I want to make about that. It's not that making a living is a necessary evil of living in a body and in a physical world. That's a ridiculous way to look at it. Why would your soul have to come to the world just to work? Let your soul stay in heaven where it doesn't have to work. The Hasidic view of this is that, you know, we spoke about this earlier, that ultimately the, the refined physical universe will be holier than heaven. That this physical world will be the holiest place. To the extent where all the souls in heaven, even on the highest levels, will make a U-turn and come back for the resurrection to be in bodies again. So the, the fact that the soul came to the physical world was to refine the physical world. And that we have to realize that each one of us came to the world for a special mission, a special shlichus, and, and one part of the world to refine. So you look to your talents, you look to your predispositions to get a clue where it is that you may have a unique contribution to refine the physical world. And to understand the reason that you have a job is not because you need money. Hashem can send you money however he wants to. The reason you have a job is so that you can do your shlichus. That when you're, not that I know so much about this firsthand, but you're closing a business deal and you mention to somebody, um, oh, I have to go Davin Mincha. Oh, what's that? You know, the whole point of the deal was that you could mention something Jewish, something holy, because if it were just for the money, Hashem could have sent you the money. Hashem could have put it in your bank account like uh, manna from heaven. The point of being involved in the world is because your soul came to the world to refine the world. In, in other words, we didn't come here to get anything from the world. We came here to give something to the world. You didn't come here to get your money. You don't even need money if you, would, if you just stay, <laughs> stay in paradise. You came to the world to give the world your unique contribution. Part of which will come to light when you follow your talents and your skills and your preferences and, and you shine in that area. Okay, I just wanted to, uh, to mention that. This is a practical example is it doesn't have to be mentioning Mincha. The Rebbe would always, always, I've seen many examples, let me just rephrase that, where the Rebbe would tell someone to take a dollar and put it in a charity box in the business, in the bank, in the hospital, wherever they, they were running a business, and say that put a charity box in the business. And the obvious reason was is not only so that the Rebbe's blessing should be there, but that people should give charity in the business. That if someone is doing a deal, and I've been involved in this multiple times, they people literally put a dollar in the stucco box. And at that moment, that little dollar has a huge impact, much more meaningful than the bigger amounts of dollars that might be happening in the room. And I can personally attest to have being involved in those situations, and Jews and non-Jews alike around the table are just floored. The mitzvah for non-Jews also to by get that, tzedakah. By, yeah. by tzedakah box, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 
So, to, okay, so to, now to, you found, so you found the job, you know what's going okay. on, you're not a comedian, okay. you're working in real okay. estate, that's what I do. So what are you supposed to do? How, many, how much time is too much time? How much is too little time? How much am I supposed to worry or not worry about my deal that I'm working on, as an example? I have no clue. I'm still working on it. That's the real answer. But, but, the, but the other answer is, is that what I've seen, and there's many more examples that are brought in the Safer, is two things that speak to me. Is one is the example of washing dishes. Has everyone here washed dishes before? I've washed yeah, dishes many a time. You, Rabbi? Yeah, yeah. All the time. Yeah. You know the story, the, the Rebbe's story, that someone says, I uh, need help with Shalom Bias? Shalom Bias, yeah. Should I wrap my... Well, sorry, he heard that it was a school for Shalom Bias if, you, if the husband Fold folds his talus after, after Shabbos. He wanted to know if it's true or not. So the Rebbe said, I don't know about that, but I'll tell you what's true. Fold your sleeves up, wash the dishes. That's definitely going to help for Shalom Bias. So I've been... I've washed dishes now and again. I'm happy to. <laughs> So when you wash dishes, you know, if you're lucky, you're dreaming. That's if you're lucky. You give yourself the gift of a dream. You don't think so? I don't know. I don't, I, I don't fold my towels, but I wash dishes. Never wash dishes? Her father never washed dishes. Okay. Different folks, different strokes. I don't know. All the men are off the hook. Okay. okay. I guess I'm wrong. We I'm tried. Sorry. Ladies, we tried. We tried. We tried. What? Uh, oh, I'm not knocking. I don't think the Rebbe was knocking it, but he was also saying you've got to be a part of the family to have Shalom Bayez. You can't be worried about that only. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah. I'm just a simple guy. So, <laughs> but it's a good point. So, the... It threw me off. Oh, dishes, dishwashing. So when you're washing dishes, if you wash dishes, right, yeah. usually you're dreaming. What are the, what's the kavana for washing dishes? Well, that's what I'm getting at. You're dreaming, if you're lucky. If you're not lucky, you're on your phone, and now with the stupid things that we have all in our ears, you're probably talking to somebody about some annoying conversation that you would never wanted to have, but you have to have because you're washing dishes, and now's a good time when you're going to call the person back. But usually you're not in your own world, not in the present world, rather. Which is interesting, because you're washing the dishes, right? You would think that you would look at the sponge, look at the palm olive, you would say, okay, I'm going to squirt three squirts onto the sponge, I'm going to pick up the pan, I'm going to rub it three times that way, three times that way, put it on the, because that's what you're doing, which would make all the sense in the world that that's what you would be thinking about, because but you're, you're, you're washing you're, you're the really dishes. You're really your autopilot. You're completely not present. Try it next time you wash the dishes. You are absolutely not thinking about your dishes. And I've heard that one example, it might be an extreme example, when it comes to the workspace, is that you're supposed to look at it as washing dishes. Is it shouldn't drag you down too much where you're so busy with your sponge and your pot. Because at the end of the day, it's just a sponge and just a pot, and you're just doing the work under the faucet, and the faucet, of course, being the blessing that comes from Hashem either way. So that was one example that I, that I saw. And the second was a... I believe it was the rabbi who talked about Can I just it. respond? Sure. I love the, the, the visualization here of basically... All work is like washing dishes. Um, I want everyone to understand that that doesn't mean that you do your work mindlessly and inattentively and irresponsibly. Because I, I teach Shabbat talking in seminary. So in seminary, I get all this pushback. When I say these things, they won't let me get away with it. They'll be like, oh, so basically you should be irresponsible. You should be dreaming while you're working, right? It doesn't mean that you are 
totally checked out. What it means is, and I think this is the, the, the point of the dishwashing metaphor, is that even when you're doing it and you know what you're doing, and obviously, you know, if like you're a surgeon, <laughs> you're paying attention to surgery. If you're a pilot, you're paying attention to flying the plane. But what it means is, as a means to making money, you're not emotionally attached to it as if this thing itself, the more you focus on it, the more financial security you'll get from it. In other words, you take the financial security aspect out of it, out of the picture, you remove it as a factor, and you say, my financial security comes from Hashem. Now, how much focus do I need to do while I do my job? As much as it takes to responsibly do my job. But I don't have to immerse my head and my heart into it thinking that that will create more income. Because it doesn't. The two are totally not connected. Or to use the famous uh, punchline from the story, I'm sure you know the uh, famous uh, story about the Chassid who went to Lubavitch, the actual town of Lubavitch. He spent Shabbos by the Rebbe Rishab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe. And this guy was a manufacturer. He, made, he had a factory. What did they make? They made galoshes, rain boots. And apparently, all Shabbos, he was preoccupied about his business. And the Rebbe Rashab said to him, you know, I've seen people before with their feet in their galoshes. This is the first time I meet someone with his head in his galoshes, right? So yeah, show up, do your job responsibly. But as much as it takes to do it responsibly, don't think that giving it more headspace or heart space is going to create greater financial results because the two things are absolutely not connected. What's the uh, Tzemach Tzedek's line on this? Uh, oh, from Derech Mitzvah Secha. And, and you can't properly learn the subject of Bitochen in the, in the realm of Parnassah without learning a mimer from the Tzemach Tzedek in Derech Mitzvah Secha called Tiglachas HaMetzayda. I know that Tiglachas HaMetzayda means the shaving of the biblical leper. And it sounds like it has nothing to do with financial worries. But you have to learn it. It's in English as well. And uh, basically has a great line over there. The Tzemach Tzedek says that your means for making a living is like a suit. A suit of clothes. Everyone needs to have clothing. But it's not necessarily that the more of a suit you have, the better it is, to the extent that a person would say, well, you know what, if uh, this size suit fits me, you know what, give me, a, give me three sizes bigger than I need, and then it'll be even more functional, it'll work even better. Everyone real realizes, no, you just have the suit that fits you, and in fact, if you have a suit that's too big, he says, you trip on it. You end up tripping on it. So it's just a suit. Just make it big enough to fit. That's it. You don't have to make it extra. You don't have to supersize it. So, and if it's too small, by the way, you can't breathe. It's another thing. So, so to, to come back to the point is that the two things I've seen in figuring out the perfect equation of time is yesterday's Hayyim Yayim is one, which Rabbi Taub will for sure quote because I'm going to misquote it. And that the Rebbe wrote to somebody that, I don't know how much you should work or not work, but you know, you have to go to shul in the morning, you have to learn every day, 
You got to help your wife with the kids. You got to go to Mincha. You got to help your wife in the afternoon. You got to go to Myriv. So in between there, you know, you should go to your work. Do your work. So I think it's, 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 it's really a function of trying to remember, like Rabbi Taub said, and what the entire Sefer is about, is that don't get lost too much in the details. You got to focus in on the core po- point here, which is to have betachen in God. And I want to say that betachen is a muscle. And this is directly from my wife. So I think all the credit goes to her on this one. <laughs> you know, there's no, it's not a self-help book. This is not, I'm not Tony Robbins, and this is not, you know, you're not going to go have betachen tomorrow and win the lottery, and, you know, I don't know, go to the gym five times a week suddenly. It's not how it works. It's a muscle that every day as Jews we are meant to work on. And we are challenged with things, and sometimes we are blessed to see the outcome with our eyes, which is what we daven for every day, that we should be revealed good and revealed blessings and revealed... Um, you know, whatever it is we're looking for. But not always does it happen. When it doesn't happen, the message of Betachen is that's the moment when you can say to yourself that I trust, even though I'm not seeing necessarily how this is good, that it is good and will be good. And the more you exercise the muscle, the more as time progresses, something comes your way, you, you've got the stamina to overcome. And it doesn't mean you whitewash your human emotions. That's also not what that means. So if, if something is scary, if you're looking at a financial challenge, a health challenge, whatever that story is that the whole world tells you, freak out, go crazy, now's the time to lose it. Betachen is not okay, just forget it, God, it doesn't matter, it's not real. That's not what it means. Feel it, you're a person, go through the emotional experience, feel the fear, fear all of it, and that takes you to what Betachen really is which is after that, the end of that process is, and now I can trust in Hashem that it's all going to be good. And going back to the bitachon b'simcha, that's what I think it's all about, which my wife pointed out to me, is that when you have bitachon, it's and you work on it, you go through the challenging times, you feel the process, and on the other end of it is a trust that's full of joy and a trust that's full of happiness because you know it's going to be good and you didn't pretend like the human experience didn't happen. I think we call it spiritual bypass is the best way I've heard of that. Uh, you know, this, the, the earlier session before you were here, that's all we spoke about was going through the process. And the process doesn't mean to live in denial and pretend that whatever's happening isn't happening, but it's to realize that you can even be besimcha now because the process will work itself out and Hashem's in charge. It's leading to good things. And we can relax and just show up, just show up for our own lives. You see, that was my massive ending that I was going to get this thunderous applause and you did it an hour. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm done. Thank you. Um, this is Pavsner. What should we do about the Q&A? We do some Q&A? Yeah. Are the ladies going to be quiet or is it going to be uh, a rush for the door? I'll do Q&A if people... Okay. We're doing uh, Q&A. Okay. 
This is only going to be possible. I'll do Q&A, but it's only possible if everybody who's done learning can uh, go outside. What? I, yeah, but it's not, it's not really possible. It's, it's not really possible. Yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, unless, unless the people who are conversing can go outside, we can't really do Q&A. I understand many people have to leave. You have other places to be, that's, that's fine. Um, okay, good, it's a little quieter now. All right, so I'm gonna go through some questions that were handed in. And we understand that if you need to leave, please uh, go about your business, whatever you need to do, and thank you for uh, joining us until now. All right. Question here. Oh, I never saw this before. Why do bad things happen to good people? <laughs> never saw that before, okay? I wasn't prepared for that. Okay. Actually, in Shara Betochen, in Shara Betochen, Rebbeinu Bechaya asks this question. He is certainly not the only sage in Jewish history to have asked this question. In fact, Moshe Rabbeinu himself asked Hashem this question. And since then, all of the prophets and all of the, the great teachers have asked this question. Conversely, there's another question that always goes along with this question, which is, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do the wicked prosper? And I'm going to tell you now what it says in Shara B'Tochen. And I'm going to tell you what I always emphasize when I teach this in seminary. In Shara B'Tochen, he goes through a number of different reasons that explain why bad things happen to good people and why good things happen to wicked people. Some of, it, some of it has to do with intergenerational stuff that needs to be sorted out. Some of it has to do with testing people or making an example of people or sometimes it's about a person's liability that nothing he did wrong but as a leader he's responsible for other people's wrongdoing. He gives many, many, many examples. When I teach this in seminary, I always tell them, I don't care if you remember any of these reasons. All I care is that you remember one word. The word is mayhem. Mayhem means from these or from among these. Ladies, you don't realize, but if you're talking very quietly on the other side of the mechitza, it makes it hard to learn over here. It, it, can you hear me? Because I hear you, and I've got a microphone. 
Yeah, thank you. Rebbeinu Bechaya makes a list of many different reasons. And he makes it clear that this is not an exhaustive list. Please, if, if you're finished learning, if you're, do you hear me? If you're finished learning, please go outside because it's not possible for me to focus. We can hear you. If you're, in the, if you're in the room, you're in the same room as us, even if you're on the other side of the mechitza. You're still in the same room as us. Sound travels. Thank you so much. Sorry to be a stickler about that. It's probably not easy for the people who are still here. This is a big commitment for you to be here, and I want your time to be well spent. I always make a point to my seminary uh, students I don't care if you remember all the different reasons Rebbeinu B'chaya gives, why the wicked prosper and why the righteous suffer. I want you to remember that he gives us many different reasons, and he says these are among the reasons. Meaning to say, there are a lot of reasons, these are some of them, and there's a lot more. What's the implication? First, let me tell you what Rebbeinu B'chaya is not saying. And I think this is super important, especially for religious people who have a special weakness in this area. He is not saying, I have given you a multiple choice list to figure out why good people suffer. So when you see a good person suffering, pick one of these things from the list, it's one of those things. And then you'll figure out why this good person is suffering. God forbid. That is not his point, and that would be a terrible perversion and misuse of Shara Betochen. His point in listing examples of why the righteous suffer is not to give you a way of figuring it out when it happens. His point in giving you a list is to let you know there are a lot of different reasons, a lot of complicated factors here. And in fact, what I'm listing to you are only some of them. There are many other reasons. And therefore, please know that these things are complicated. There are a lot of reasons, some of them quite mystical and unknowable. The point of Rebbeinu B'chayah giving us explanations for why it might happen that the righteous suffer or the wicked prosper is to humble us into embracing the fact that there are so many different factors here and so many different reasons, some of which are completely concealed from the human mind, that when we see it happen, we should have one reaction, which is a two-sided coin. On one side, we should say, there's definitely a reason why this is happening. On the other side of that coin, I definitely don't know it. There's definitely a reason why this is happening. I definitely don't know it. Be very careful of those who volunteer to give you the reason, the explanation, that they know why a certain person 
is seemingly undeservedly suffering. So in short, the answer is Hashem has his reasons, but we would be arrogant and cruel to think that we can know in a case-by-case -case basis why it ever happens. It's a little bit of a paradox. Hmm? You basically need to trust? Yeah, that's the whole point. You need to trust. Hmm? You cannot question? I mean, you, you, you can question because there's an answer. You can question God. There's an answer to the question. The answer is, there's a reason. It doesn't mean that we will ever be able to wrap our minds around the reason. You understand that these are two very different things. Just because something is true doesn't make it knowable. The exception to that, remember when I was telling you the, uh, the metaphor of the suit, disassembling the suit so that you can see how every square inch is accounted for? You would have to have been privy to Hashem's infinite perspective before creation in order to see how everything makes sense, right? So the exception to this is that when Mashiach does come, then we will see with Hashem's perspective and we will be able to see the reasons why everything happened. And then, like I mentioned earlier, I told you the Rebbe's letter to Ben Svi when he spoke about since he was a little child, he was envisioning what Geula would be like. And he specifically mentioned the verse, that when the Geula comes, I'll be able to thank Hashem for my troubles. Why will I thank Hashem at that point? Because only then will I be able to see how it all makes sense. But until such a time, I don't have to know how it makes sense. I just have to know that it makes sense. Big difference, huge difference. Okay, I wanna to go to another question because we could stay on that question all day. Um, oh, yeah. My personal Dima, tears. Remember, we spoke about Dima Ima Koilal, Begamatria Moyed. And the perspective of Mashiach, for my own destruction, I can do. What do I do when it's friends and family going through their Dima? That is a question. Yeah. Everyone understands? So here is another paradox. We've had a number of paradoxes today. I, in fact, I think everything that's true is a paradox. If it's not a paradox, it's only half the truth. The truth is so complete that it embraces and contains within it opposites. So if something isn't a paradox, it's probably not true. Here's a paradox. 
when it comes to my troubles and my challenges, I can see meaning. When it comes to someone else's troubles and challenges, I'm not allowed to see meaning. Well, how can I have such opposite views of essentially the same thing? And I'll try to explain it to you very simply. Um, there's an expression our sages use to describe dealing well with adversity. They call it actually to be mekabal yesurim ba'ava, to receive or to accept pain with love, to lovingly accept pain. I think that word accept is very important. If Amazon accidentally brings to my house a shipment that was meant for my neighbor, am I allowed to keep it? Why not? It's not mine. I can only accept that which is mine. If Hashem sends me adversity, then it is my teacher. And by accepting it, I will gain, I will learn, I will be refined, I will be elevated. Or at the very least, at least I'll be me. I'll be showing up for my life. Which probably also means learning from it and being refined by it and all those things as well. But the point is, it's mine, so it's for me, and it benefits me to accept it. But how is my neighbor's suffering a teacher for me? How do I become refined? How do I have a growth experience because someone else is being put through the ringer? That's absurd. The only response that I'm supposed to have to somebody else's hardships is compassion. Well, compassion and if you can do something, do something. And if you can't do anything, then at least say Tehillim. At least feel bad for them. Or preferably both. Your heart breaks, and if you can bring them a kugel, you bring them a kugel. Whatever it is that you could do. But don't learn from it. Don't say, oh... My neighbor's suffering has refined me so much. I'm so enlightened by watching other people suffer. Not only is it cruel, it's foolish. That's not how it works. I can't gain spiritual elevation by witnessing other people suffer. In fact, I, I only experience the opposite. I become spiritually demeaned. I become a lower person by watching people suffer and being nonchalant about it. And particularly if I use religion as my excuse and my comfort why I'm unbothered by other people's suffering, then not only have I demeaned myself, I've demeaned God. So we have very different responses. And that's why it's super important. Here is probably the most important practical tip for the day that I can give you. After you leave today, you're going to be on fire. You're going to be all hyped up about Betochen. I hope. 
please keep it to yourself. Because we don't realize how inadvertently hurtful we can be when we are sharing our clarity and someone else is misinterpreting it and hearing it as being ambivalent about their pain. It's so, so, so important to be careful about this. That's why when, when people will ask me, people who ask a real question, they say, you know, I'm going through a hard time. What do you say about that? Even though I'm a rabbi and implicitly it's like implied that if you're asking me, you're probably looking for a religious answer. I don't even make that assumption. I'll, use, I'll, I'll usually ask them, do you want me to give you a religious explanation right now or are you asking me as a human being? Because you ask me as a human being, my response is, I'm sorry, I, I, I feel bad. If you want a religious explanation, I'll give you one. And even then, I'll only give it to you and tell you this is what I do. I won't tell you this is what you should do. I'll say this is how I deal with whatever I have to deal with. But we have to be really, really careful because I, I think it's a great Hillel Hashem in the most literal sense of desecrating God's name by making God look bad when his believers behave in, a, in an unbecoming way. If our excitement about Imuna and Betochen will ever come across as being apathetic about other people's hardships. Clarify. I mean, it was a 10 minute answer. I should do more. What, what do you want? What? Yeah. 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 Could amplify any, I could amplify any, on anything over here, but I'm trying to have Rahmanis. Uh, People don't want to sit here all day. I could. What? What about giving chizuk if they want it? Uh, you have to be careful about that as well. Because sometimes people don't want your encouragement. They just want your empathy. You have to figure out what people want. You have to ask. You have to ask people what they want. Um... There's a new one that just came in. I see here somebody wrote, is a person allowed to ask why? Is it a lack in emuna? I think I answered that before, but it's worthy to repeat. You're allowed to question as long as you know that this question has an answer and you're ready to accept the answer. And the answer is because. If you're not going to accept that there are things that we can't understand, then the problem isn't 
that you're questioning God. The problem is that you're refusing his answer. Okay. Um, here's another one. How do we reconcile the feelings of wanting the gashmias of this beautiful world with really being that this world is just a passage and a preparation to the real world? Are we supposed to? Is it okay to love Gashmias too? Okay, that's a great question. That's today's Hayyam Yay. You want to bring me a Hayyam Yay? What? It's right there. What? Oh, it's on the board. I can't uh, look at it and remain on camera. No one has a safer? Hayyam Yay. Huh? Yeah, but no, no one's going to hear you online. Maybe, uh, yeah. Right. So you're saying, why don't they know that Hayyem Yem? Yeah, well, uh, I refuse to answer the question on grounds that may incriminate me. I got it. I pulled it up. Oh, now we have a real safer. Everyone knows about Hayyem Yem? Okay. Hayyem Yem is a sefer that the, the Labavitcher Rebbe compiled before he became Rebbe. And it is a daily book of meditations organized by the calendar year. Every single day has a different short little passage, usually a paragraph, usually not that long at all, sometimes just a line or two. And it's all taken from uh, excerpts from the Rebbe's Rebbe, from uh, the Rebbe Rayatz. And it has a subtitle, Luach Erzerua Lechsidei Chabad. It's a, a calendar of seeds of light. Seeds are tiny things, but they grow infinitely. Like they say, anyone can count the seeds in an apple, only Hashem can count the apples in a seed. Because when a seed grows, it creates a tree which creates many more apples with many more seeds, which create many more generations of fruits with seeds. So every little Hayyemim is a tiny little entry, but it grows on you. Oh, I was talking about before having that morning ritual where you check in and get your reality alignment before you go into the world. I would definitely encourage that to be part of your repertoire to learn the Hayyem uh, Yayim in the morning before you tackle your day. Okay. So anyways, it says that Hey uh, Menachemov Turn away from evil. These are the words from Tehillim, from uh, 
Capitol Lama Dalad. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. What does that mean? The Baal Shem gesagt. The Baal Shem said regarding this. In jede dover gashmi von dvorem hamutorem zayne feran te vira. In every physical thing that's permissible, and let me stress, that's permissible, because if it's forbidden, then there's no good in it. But every physical thing that's permissible has both good and bad in it. Der Gashmi is ra, und der Chayaselaki was is mechayedem Gashmi is teiv. The physicality is bad, and the godly energy that's enlivening the thing is good. Now I should explain before I go further. It doesn't mean that physicality inherently is evil. It means that physicality divorced from its divine purpose, physicality for its own sake, for no other reason than physicality, that becomes ra, because now it's devoid of any meaning. But obviously when the thing is used in alignment with the divine purpose for which it was created, that's not ra, that's toif. Bedarf der Mensch, was benutzt dem Gashmi, seine Sumera. The person who uses the physical thing has to get away from the evil. Nit wellen dem Tainug, was is fran in dem Gashmi. Which means he shouldn't be drawn after the physical pleasure of the physical thing. Und sein, v'asei toiv, rather he should do good. Wellen gespeist und geholfen werden von dem Chayeselaki, was is in dem Dover Hagashmi. He should go look for the good, which is the divine sustenance that's in that thing. In other words, you have a permissible thing. You could use it in a selfish, meaningless, hedonistic way as just a tool for your own physical pleasure, in which case the entire event is meaningless. Or you could engage that physical thing in a meaningful way. So you can eat the food just because it tastes good, or you can eat the food even though it tastes good, and you're not pretending it doesn't taste good, but you're eating it because it has divine energy which will allow you to do your purpose in the world. It's up to you how you engage that thing. Both possibilities exist. A few more lines here. It's not long. Remember the verse was, go away from evil and do good. Seek out peace and pursue it. So we said, go away from evil means don't get pulled into the mindless, senseless indulgence of physical pleasure. That's go away from evil. Do good means find the purpose, the usefulness of that physical thing, how it can be used as a tool for serving Hashem. And then the third thing, seek out peace and pursue it. Der Mensch 
was es assumera und er war aseitäuf, bedarf suchen und noch läufen zu machen Scholem zwischen dem Gashmi und Chaya Selaki, was es im Mechaya. Now you make peace between those two things, between the physicality and the godly energy which enlivens the physicality. In other words, the best of both worlds. You don't have to deny the physicality in order to be spiritual. To the contrary, you should make use of it. You should engage the physicality. You don't have to take a vow of poverty and renounce your physical possessions. No, you can have nice things. But how do you make sure you're using your things and your things aren't using you? <laughs> is making sure that your relationship with them is not that they are giving you anything, but you're giving to them. They shouldn't be providing you with pleasure or amusement or comfort or distraction. You should be providing the things in your life with an aliyah, with an elevation by using them for a divine purpose. And that harmony is called shalom. It's called making peace between the physical and the spiritual. So to answer your original question, what do you do about this beautiful physical world that Hashem made? The question really was based on a premise that there's a conflict between the two, between being a spiritual servant and being involved in the physical world. And without this understanding that's encapsulated in today's Hayyem Yayim, it does seem like a conflict. And the best that you can manage without this important knowledge, it's, it seems to be uh, just basically jumping back and forth between the two and calling that balance. You see people who do that. One for me, one for you, right? I'll have a little personal indulgence and then I'll say some tilim and give Hashem some of his indulgence. Hashem, I was good for you. I did a mitzvah. Now it's time for my chocolate cake. And you sort of switch back and forth. Which is a real kafakela. It's a real slingshot to be in. Now I'm spiritual. Now I'm physical. Now I'm spiritual. Now I'm physical. It's no way to live. The solution of chassidus is that you can harmonize the physical and the spiritual by realizing that everything that exists, that is permissible. Again, I will stress that word permissible because if it's forbidden, then there is, no, there is no productive use for it. But anything in the world that's permissible has a godly purpose for which it was created. And if it didn't have a godly purpose, it wouldn't have been created. And if you as a Jew can use something in this world whether it's the food you eat to get calories to daven and to learn and to do mitzvahs, or it's the car you own in order to, to do carpool and to take your kids to, to go learn Torah, or it's uh, the house that you own in order to have uh, Shabbos guests, or whatever, or your money that you earn in order to pay tuition, give tzedakah, to do all types of expensive things that uh, being an observant Jew sort of require you to do then you are using the physicality for the purpose for which it exists, and then you are having the best of both. 
you are in the physical world, you're involved in the physical world, you're not denying the physicality, but you're not allowing it to control you and to dominate you by sucking you into that allure of getting your needs met. Using physical things to meet your needs is a very, very poor idea. We rely on Hashem that He takes care of us, He meets all of our needs, and that if we're given physical things, it's only because something we're supposed to do with those things as a contribution, as a way of being helpful and useful to Him and to His children and to the world. Does that answer the question? Do you need a Rolls Royce to do carpool? It depends who's in your carpool. So, and, and that's why get yourself a mentor and remove all doubt. That's a real question to ask a mashpia. And by rav, I don't mean like a paisik, I mean a mentor, somebody who uh, is objective and you respect, and you can ask, you know, I want to buy a Rolls Royce for my carpool. Do you think that uh, is justified? I don't know. See what he says. Find out. Don't argue when he says, yeah, I think you'll be okay with the Bentley. You don't need the Rolls Royce. You can do yeah. Okay. I could stay here all day, but what, what are we doing here? Huh? Huh? We're good? Mr. Pevsner? What do you say? Yeah, we're good? Okay, thank you, everybody. And happy birthday again. Okay.